You understand the meaning of the word foreboding? As in badness is happening right now. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Far too kind. Oh, you guys are a hell of a duet here. Why'd you start harmonizing? Can I get an encore? Do you want more? Cook and roll with the Brooklyn boys. So for one last time, I need you. Because lobsters live for over 100 years. Now what the hell are you waiting for? After me, there should be no more. So for one last time, make some noise. That's for John Lennon, you Yankee fucking cunt. City. 12 million people. 22 million phones. A billion connections a day. I believe in you, man. Big Q, be reasonable. I'm a gangster. I don't gotta be reasonable. Starting out. Hello, Big Q. Stu Shepard thought he had the game wired. How's business? Tickets. Four for Britney Spears, right? Look, you owe me, Stu. It's gotta be the night of the 18th, and I will deliver you a truckload of celebrities. But today. Someone's got his number. Yeah. Don't even think about leaving that booth. Wrong number, pal. I'm aiming at you right now. Can you feel it, Stu? Did you call me Stu? Yo, yo, yo. Hello, everybody. This is Above the Title, a podcast about the career of Colin Farrell and the state of the 21st century movie star. I'm Connor. I'm Cole. And we are back and we have another guest with us this week. Uh, joining us on the pod today is tonight, I guess, is uh, he requested I bill him as the number three Kelly Reichardt stand <laughs> in the world. It's Jake Mueller. Jake, so, thank you so much. For thank you for tonight. having me. Quick correction. I'm the number one Kelly Reichardt Sounds stand. fake. Not only on this podcast, but of all time and uh, resident Colin Farrell obsessor. So I, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. I say this with all <laughs> due respect. The number one Kelly Reichardt stand is Kelly Reichardt. If you've ever sure. read an interview with her. <laughs> Besides oh, Michelle dear. Williams, Kelly Reichardt, and her dog. Todd Lucy. Field. Sorry, sorry not Todd, Todd Field. Todd Haynes. And Mary Fessenden. The man who made her career, yes. Then me, um, then you. Connor, you're in there somewhere. But yeah, hey, I'll this is not a Kelly Reichardt. Or wherever you just put me. Should, should Colin Farrell That's work fair, with Kelly fair. Reichardt? I think Colin Farrell should work sh- with everybody. Yeah, I was but, just about to say segue into my dream director for Colin to work with. That uh, would be please interesting. Make it happen. Yeah, it'd be a weird vibe, but he can do muted. Um, but yes, welcome to Above the Title. Uh, thank you, Jake, for joining us this week. We are talking about Phone Booth, the 2000- 2000. Back in Joel Schumacher land. Back in Joel Schumacher <laughs> land, baby, number two or three. Before we get into Phone Booth, I just wanted to ask you, Jake, mm-hmm. big picture. What are your thoughts on Colin Farrell? That's a long-winded. I know. Answer. You go, go, um, go. Um, start so with thumbs up or thumbs down. Two thumbs. Wait the fuck up. I That's mean, what I, thought. I think he's yeah. our most interesting movie star, contemporary movie star. Um, I think phone. The reason I chose Phone Booth in in particular is this was my introduction introduction to Colin Farrell as a movie star when I was when I was really really young, and to sort of see his evolution, not only in the public eye, but on screen as sort of this chamele- chameleonic a tourist actor is just such a, an incredible uh, evolution for a movie star, in my opinion. And he's so fascinating. And I think you guys mentioned this on Tigerland, how the fact that he is so open about rehab and his vulnerabilities with 
the public eye and th- the fact that he hasn't done anything discernibly wrong as a human being like that protect him at all of. costs right yeah <laughs> honestly yeah um yeah i mean i guess if since you said it was this one let's well, gonna did you see this when it when it came out i was five years old when that's this what i out. thought <laughs> um but quick sidebar i rented this from blockbuster with my father uh who was a big joel schumacher fan um big apologist for the batman films and wow and he was like at the time (laughs) and nothing to do with the gay undertones or anything like that i I don't to this day i don't know what draws him to it even i love those films but phone booth in particular and i think cole and i you discussed this on my podcast i am a sucker for situational dumb guy thrillers yeah this might be the pinnacle uh for early 2000s dumb guy thrillers and it's always stuck with me and i don't want to get into it now but on rewatch there are a lot of blatant issues that i had with the writing of this film (laughs) but (laughs) rest assured i have like a deep fondness for the subgenre that this movie exists in but also just as a stepping stone in colin farrell's career so that's that's basically why i chose it yeah, I know you said this was like the one that got you into Colin. Do you remember what the first Colin Farrell movie you saw was? Uh, probably Minority Report. Yeah, which was around the same era. Yeah. Um, and to be clear, I was I didn't see it in theaters. Also, I was I was five. I'm I'm dating myself a lot here, but it was around that time. Uh, it, I didn't see in Bruges and like the New World till a lot later, but. This Towards, era of Colin, I was just yeah. a massive fan of. So, yeah. and I hadn't seen Tigerland till you guys announced this podcast because, truthfully, I didn't know it existed. Nobody has seen it. <laughs> it made one hundred and forty thousand dollars at the U.S. box office and zero dollars internationally. Right, and you you made the right comparison that that's like that Schumacher's Black Hat. Yeah, and maybe the Black Hat of this series, not to go. Not to mention Michael Mann right up front. It's so um, weird. I mean, well, wait, can we you, say this? Can we? Yeah, this movie begins the same exactly way that Black Hat Exactly like Black Hat. This I know. Starts, now, I can't remember because I haven't seen the theatrical cut of Black Hat in a dog's age. Does the theatrical cut of Black Hat also start with yes, the like yeah. CGI run through the computer? But yeah, this yep. movie starts with like CGI satellites beaming signals and then zooming through yeah. like digital phone lines. And I did the fucking Leo and once upon a time in Hollywood point, because I have not seen this movie in several years, but I did the point. I was like, that's the fucking black hat opening Michael Mann, you dirty dog. You stole it. And then like low key, the rest of this opening is kind of the Tony Scott taking a Pelham. Yes, opening yes, at yes, like yes. 20%. Um, Connor, when did, did you see- um, Well, I, I yeah. want to throw a couple things out there first. When did the first X-Men come out? 2000? 2000. Because I remember that one begins with like the DNA strips, yeah. CGI of the DNA breaking apart and reforming. So oh, I wonder sure. if this is just, opening. you know... And Spider-Man, uh, the, the year before this, Spider-Man has a similar mm-hmm. opening credit sequence. Of course, Fight Club Spider-Man's has, was more like yeah. comic book panels. Right. I remember, man, maybe I'm misremembering the Spider-Man opening. Yeah. I know the second one is definitely like, it's like a comic book panel yeah. representation of the first one. Yeah, so the um, first one I think is more like DNA, blood. It's blood stuff, right? I don't remember. I, I uh, Cole, is this your, is this your like 
inception of Colin Farrell as a movie star, this film? Kind of. And actually looking into the, the release of this movie, I'm definitely wrong on that. I think it's all a morass. Because I, I said last week when we did Minority Report that I, I saw Minority Report in theaters, but I do not have like a strong memory of associating that movie with Colin Farrell. In fact, I said I often forget that he's in that movie until mm-hmm. I'm watching it because for, for good or for ill, we got into this last week. It is a very chameleonic performance he's giving us. He's not trying to steal the movie out from under Tom. You're not the only one that yeah. I speaking with our friend Langston, we were talking about Spielberg and he yeah. was like ranking minority report as like his third favorite, second favorite Spielberg. It's and incredible. I was like, dude, why didn't you want to yeah. do the minority report pod? And he was like, Colin Farrell's in that movie. And I was like, <laughs> yes, man. <laughs> in, in my brain, this movie I, I saw this movie for the first time a couple of years ago. I did not see it when it came out. I was aware of it when it came out because I was paying attention to movies. Eh, wasn't seeing that many R-rated movies in early 2003, maybe only like a handful. Um, but I was aware of it. It has an incredible hook, obviously, and that sticks in your brain. And I kind of just have vague memories of this whole era of Colin Farrell that you're talking about, Jake, as being more aware that he is an incredibly famous person than aware of his work. And I think part of that is because he's also such a tabloid fixture Mm -hmm. in this time. But then I looked at the release schedule and I guess let's just, let's just touch on it. We're, we're recording and releasing these episodes in chronological order of premiere date. When I put that list together, what I did not realize was this movie premieres the 2002 Toronto film festival but this movie is about, and it's supposed to come out in the fall of 2002. This movie is obviously about a sniper and the DC Beltway sniper attacks happen right. in late 2002. So they push the movie, which means by the time this movie actually comes out in, I believe, April of 2003, Connor, does that sound right to you? Um, I have it written down. Uh, you can keep going though. I'll chime in. When <laughs> yeah, I, I believe it's April. Regardless, the specific date does not 100% matter for this anecdote. This movie does come out after The Recruit and Daredevil, our next two episodes. Yes, it was released on April out. 4th. Yeah. It was uh Tiff was September 10th. It was supposed yeah. to come out in November of yeah. 2002. So, but because it gets pushed, like I said, I'm like aware of him as a movie star, but it's also because he's got these three big roles coming out in rapid succession. And I have definitely already seen Daredevil by the time this movie is like I'm seeing trailers for this movie. So that's my kind of long-winded answer. I never, I did not end up catching up with it until I watched it a couple of years ago. Uh, yeah. And Connor, did you say you had never seen this before? I had never seen this until That's this insane. Week, or last week. Um, wow. I don't movie know. Fucking rules. And <laughs> you're missing out. This movie. I, I do feel love. like I missed out. I feel like um, watching it, it definitely, I think you have to situate yourself back within the filmmaking practices of 20 years ago to like fully appreciate it for what it is, considering how they made it and kind of what they were experimenting with formally. Um, I think maybe we should probably recap. I just want to throw out a couple other things. Um, The first thing is that this is the literally the consecutive second consecutive Schumacher film to be pushed because of terrorist attacks, which is kind of crazy to think about his one proceeding. This bad company features oh, a, shit. attempted yeah. bombing of grand central. And it was pushed because of nine 11. It was supposed to come out in 2001 and I'm coming out in 2002. 
um, then this was supposed to come out in 2002 and ended up coming out in 2003. Um, and then my my question that I would just want to start this off with, have either of you ever made a phone call from a phone booth? Because I think I, as a child, I always kind of fantasized about it, like no. the Superman going into the phone booth and watching, you know, <laughs> movies from the 70s and up through the 90s and <laughs> kind of. I kind of it pains me that I never had the opportunity to do it. So. I I don't think I've ever used a payphone in my life. I definitely used a payphone younger. I but used this, a payphone, but never this, a phone booth. Yeah, this movie is so like antiquated, even in two thousand and three, right? <laughs> yeah. Or even when they're shooting it, because they shoot it. I think don't they shoot it almost like as early as like? Are they shooting it in two thousand? Did I see that right? in an interview somewhere was that a typo that I feels find too it. early for a movie this small to 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 go through that protracted of an editing process even with the delay like i'm just talking about yeah. the fall 2002 release but i think i saw in an interview that they shot this in late 2000 but even if they shot it in 2001 which would make more sense it's still such an antiquated hook for a movie yeah which there is a story there i think all three of us know the story there Right. Connor, I know you do. Jake, I don't know if you know the the genesis of this movie. We'll get into it. We'll but, get into um, it. I do. Paul, do you want to yeah. attempt recapping? Yeah. It? <laughs> so again, we are talking about the 2002 or 2003, depending on how you define it. Colin Farrell, Joel Schumacher movie, Phone Booth. Again, directed by Joel Schumacher. Uh, once again, shot by the fucking god Matthew Liebatik. Written by Larry Cohen. Lots to get into that. Uh, as we said, <laughs> premieres at the 2002 Toronto Film Festival for a fall 2002 release before getting pushed. Um, and yeah, I'm going to try to run through this plot description. So bear with me. Colin Farrell stars as Stu Shepard, a hotshot PR agent living in New York City. Uh, one day going about his day, he makes a detour to the last phone booth in Midtown Manhattan, where he regularly calls his mistress so as to hide uh, his infidelity from his wife, from his cell phone bill and from his wife. Um, after making a call to his mistress and attempting to sleep with her uh, and hanging up the phone, the phone rings again. He picks it up and a caller on the other end of the line, voiced by Kiefer Sutherland, doing a Roger Jackson impression. Um <laughs> begins to spill out an intimate knowledge of all the details of Stu's life, his infidelities, and his habits of reaching to this phone book, and begins to taunt him and threaten to release this information unless he reveals the infidelity to his wife. Stu stalls, and in the process of stalling, gets into an altercation with a group of prostitutes in the neighborhood attempting to use the phone. They get their pimp, uh, as they're getting their pimp, the caller reveals that he is actually a sniper holding a gun to Colin Farrell. And when the pimp tries to evict, evict Farrell from the phone booth, the sniper shoots and kills the pimp. Uh, it appears to everyone around that Shepard was the one who shot this man. The police cordon off and a police standoff happens as Stu is stuck in the phone booth 
on the phone. Eventually, both his wife and his mistress make it down there. And Stu, pushed to the limit, realizing he is being framed for this man's murder and may also die, manages to get a message out to his wife, who gets it to the sympathetic police officer running the scene. There's a sniper holding him at attention. He eventually, to buy time, gives a grand declaration and confession of all his misdeeds to the camera, allowing the police to track down the sniper's location. They find a dead body. They think it is the sniper having killed himself. Stu ends up getting shot by a rubber bullet by the police to save him from sniper fire because the sniper thinks he's dead. But it turns out the dead man is a police delivery man that the sniper had hired to interact with Stu earlier in the film. The sniper escapes. And as Stu is in an ambulance being taken to a hospital, the sniper stops off, taunts him, with his victory and walks off into the crowd like Hannibal Lecter at the end of Sansa Lambs, implicitly going to continue his reign of terror again. Big picture. I got it right, Connor. Yeah. I think you hit everything. Um, I will say you forgot to mention uh, that Ben Foster plays a rapper. Yes. Ben Foster, (laughs) an uncredited Ben Foster plays a, Eminem knockoff in this very movie. offensive yes. Eminem. A very, very offensive, offensive Eminem. Yeah. The racial politics of this movie are not. Oh wait, who's the, guy who plays the, who's the guy who plays Mario, the that restaurant owner? Again? That's one of those guys that one's who's wild. in a million things. Josh Pace, right? Something. Let me double check. There's a character named Josh Mario. Pace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who owns a. Uh, midtown like a times square italian restaurant called yeah. mario's and it's, it's with a ridiculous new a york ridiculous yeah it's a ridiculous new york italian american portrayal of that kind of sleazy restaurant tour in that part of the city yeah josh pays one of those guys who's just been in like a million different movies in like bit parts you know a real character actor's character actor but mm-hmm. yeah so He's a that guy. He shows up. Well, he's like, definitely a oh, that guy. Yep. Like I said, this movie was written by Larry Cohen. Um, Larry Cohen is a quote-unquote legend of exploitation cinema. Um, probably best known for writing and directing the movie It's Alive, I would say, the Killer Baby movie. I think so, yeah. Uh, he the also, stuff was big. He also made The Stuff, which was big. Made a bunch of black exploitation movies. Um, he made Cue the Winged Serpent, which I do really like. Um, he originally pitched this movie to, I swear to God, because this comes at the tail end of Larry Cohen's career. He pitched this movie to Alfred Hitchcock Mm -hmm. in the 1960s. Um, I've heard, I've heard differing reports on this. Sometimes he says he pitched it as a movie. Sometimes he says he pitched it as an episode of Alfred Hitchcock presents, but the pitch was really, which makes more sense. Makes a lot, honestly, because this, this movie is 75 minutes before end credits. It is fucking short. Um, but he basically pitched Hitchcock on, wouldn't it be cool if there was a thriller that was set entirely in a phone booth? And they couldn't actually like come up with any idea beyond that. That was the pitch. <laughs> I think he actually cracked the sniper angle in the early 90s. And then, mm. as is I think common with Larry Cohen projects, if you look into them, took forever to get it off the ground. No one wanted to let him direct it. And I think, I think this is very clearly a Larry Cohen script that is directed by someone else because it's a really, really good idea. 
but it's also a good movie. And that's the thing that Larry Cohen can't ever clear is he always has great hooks. And I know this is a contentious thing to say because people love this guy, but I watch his movies. Like I said, cue the wicked serpent is fucking bananas. And God told, he did God told me to, I think. Right. Yes. Um, God told me to is also quite good. It's alive. The ambulance, the stuff, great hooks, wonderful hooks. Those movies are deathly boring to watch. The stuff is extremely boring to watch. Stuff and... sucks. Connor, I know this isn't necessarily your Ballywick. I don't know if you've seen any of this guy's movies. I, I've seen It's Alive. It's not very good. Yeah. It is what it is, you know. It's not yeah. what it is. There are better. The brood is the same. Yeah. But yeah, this was this was directed by Joel. Um, so big picture, I guess. What do we think of this movie? I find it. Um, I think you summed it up perfectly, which is like I have... <laughs> There are things in this movie that frustrate me to no end. I don't think it has anything to do with Joel Schumacher, like the way the film is presented to the viewer. They're like all like narrative plot points that I just question. I just wonder why that um, creative decisions were made in a certain way. And again, like I like the stylization of it. It's not necessarily the visual or the pacing decisions that were made. It's like almost all like the actual narrative story at hand. Yeah. And, artistically everything that schumacher colin and lee batik does i just love so much and then you bring in the larry cohen element of it i think connor you hit on the plot points like the goalposts and the rules of this movie move so much and it's are so evidently like feel so improvised and out of place specifically kiefer and collins uh the rules that he sets in the phone booth <laughs> feel yeah. so unclear and i feel like that's a larry cohen well, let me, thing let me just start right now like cole you kept referring to katie holmes's character pam as his mistress yeah in the okay recap. yeah you're she's right she's not I, she's yeah. not okay she's not his mistress she's she's a client an aspiring actress who's his client who he is fantasizing about having an affair with but has not actually yes. made the attempts to sleep with her right. outright um I think there's aspects of this movie. It's like, why not just, why not just actually make her his mistress? That's it's a what lot I more was compelling by that point. Yes, yeah. I I did notice that, and I will say, there's a lot of stuff like that I see threaded through this movie, where Stu Shepard is not like a great guy, but he's not. You know, reading reading contemporary reviews of it, you see a lot of comparisons to Sweet Smell of Success. Um, yeah, especially in the the opening ten minutes when he's like whining and dining and wheeling and dealing and like especially the scene where he manipulates a, a tabloid journalist into passing on a story he wants them to run. Um, the difference being is that you know Sweet Soul of Success is maybe the the bleakest movie to ever come out of the American cinema, <laughs> but but this guy is like he's a little slimy, but he's not that bad of a guy and that seems to me i actually don't want to put that on larry cohen's script that seems to me to be a concession of this being a studio film right mm -hmm. i can that, understand that yeah i i see that and i see some fox executive had notes about the lead of this movie especially because as we've kind of been talking about this grand make colin a movie star project that 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 just seems like some studio exec getting a little nervous about having too unlikable a protagonist 
and sanding down the edges. And, you know, I was thinking, I kind of touched on this when we talked about the ending of Minority Report last week, Connor. Um, I, I think I've gotten to a point as a viewer where like obvious concessions like that, they don't bother me anymore. You know, like I think, I think we can all be big brained enough to watch a Hayes Code era movie and be like, and make those allowances, right? You guys know what I'm, I'm saying here? I think there are times, yeah. I think like you're saying, like, um considering the Hayes Code films, it's more I like to I like to compare those Hayes Code films to films that were made in Eastern Europe during the reign of the yeah. Soviet Union because yes. filmmakers had to come up with more artistic mechanics to get their eyes or to get their ideas across to the viewer without blatantly saying them outright. And I think that um resulted in better art in the long run because of these restrictions that the filmmakers had to work within and i think in my nord report like what i said at the end of that pod was that i think spielberg understands what he's doing by kind of sewing into the story these hints that all is not as seemed you know all is not as it seems and that you can interpret the ending in multiple ways and i don't think that's an accident in that film i think that's something that spielberg is um intentionally doing with this one it it bothers me a little more because I just don't necessarily understand the character arc at the end of the day, which is really what this movie should be based fully in. I think if it was, I, I, I don't want to just turn this into like Connor's writer's workshop and see if we can like fix the script completely. I, but um, yeah. I imagine if it was like more along the lines of like Adam Sandler and uncut gems, how this film would have played. That's not a studio movie, though. Is, I know is, it's not. Yeah, I mean, but this doesn't really want to be yeah. a studio movie. If you, you know put I mean? Howie Ratner in the phone booth, it doesn't have to be that far. <laughs> Jake, Jake, have you seen the ambulance? The Larry Cohen. The Larry film? Cohen, no. Oh, I was gonna say because Eric Roberts is like a total piece of shit in that movie, and you do kind of wish for that. Jake, what do you think about this movie? Coming back to it, because I know you said it had been a while. Yeah, I don't want to necessarily keep blaming Larry Cohen because I do. <laughs> I do. Like how much? Sure. Um, I think the things I grasp onto the most are, I mean, obviously we're going to talk about Colin, but I had a reading on this movie in terms of Joel Schumacher's hatred towards media and publicists. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's reading far too into it, but it felt like a response to how critically reviled his past few films had been. And there's an anger to this movie that I did not recall. And it's some of it has to do with the frantic nature of New York city and the streets of New York. And I believe Joel is like a New York native and he understands that, that temperature and that, I guess that mode of living in New York city and how everything feels alienated and, in a city of millions, you can sort of feel claustrophobic and, and completely alone. And those aspects that I think Joel brings to this movie are why it works. But also, I think Colin's like sublimely good in this movie. Um, yeah. Like you were, I think in Ghostland or Tigerland, excuse me, his, his portrayal of the American man is a little disjointed for me, mainly because of the accent thing. But and there's I didn't realize there were going to be so many parallels with 
his character in that in the sense that he uses he uses how good of a talker and, and as a quote-unquote salesman he is to get what he wants in both of those movies and I think Schumacher uses him supremely well in this movie particular on that front so um it's uh have you seen heart score jake no i was gonna say it's also uh it's also kind of a redux of heart score in a way in that it's about a not terrible but just kind of self-absorbed guy like kind of stepping into like great leading man morality via deciding to sacrifice his life in a fashion that ultimately he survives like mm. Connor, do you get what I'm saying? I do, and also Minority Report. He's he functions the same. Yeah. He's he oh, right, begins right. as yeah. what is seemingly the lead antagonist, and then transitions into a secondary protagonist midway through the film. We have yeah yeah Connor. We've been kind of struggling weirdly, I think, with Colin the actor over the past couple episodes. Right, I think there's been a tension between our broader understanding of who this guy is and the guy who's going to go on to be in Yorgos Lanthimos and Martin McDonough movies and, and age into this wonderful actor and this kind of unsure guy. And I think we've been dancing around this question of like, was he good back in the day? Mm. I, I, I'm going to agree with you though, Jake. I think this is an extraordinary performance. It I, is. I think this is transcendent. Uh, I, I have a list of who I'd nominate for all the acting Oscars going back in every category to 1930. Uh, I would handily nominate him for best actor this year. Um, who were the he, nominations this year? In real life or in yeah, me? In real life. Do you know? Yeah, give me one second. Oh, I do know this off the top of my head because I was just thinking about this. Um, so Sean Penn wins for, for Mystic River. Mystic River. A terrible performance. That's an awful choice. Hey, hey man, horrid. he can't cry while he's crying. Tim Robbins um, won as well, too. Supporting, right? which is an even yeah. worse performance. Yeah, those um, are both awful performances. You, the, That's my it, favorite part so, of Mystic River when he's like, I can't cry about it. And Tim Robbins is like, you're crying right now, man. so weird <laughs> right, that right. the <laughs> one person who escapes Mystic River with like some sort of dignity is Kevin Bacon. Lawrence Fishburne. Is he in Mystic River? Yes, he Fishburne's, is. Fishburne's good Bonk. in that movie. Yeah, okay, and well, he maybe, does the yeah. best box. He does the best but, Boston accent in that movie. Right. The because Sean Penn wins, Tim Robbins wins, and Marcia Gay Harden is nominated, and she's also mm. terrible. Um, yeah. And I I don't particularly care for Sean Penn as an actor. Uh, I love Tim Robbins. I think Tim Robbins is an incredible mm -hmm. actor. He's unwatchably bad in Mr. Gerber. Anyway, the actual Best Actor nominees, and there was no way this movie was getting a Best Actor nominee. Laura Lenny is also in that film, by the way. Uh, no memory. That's right. Um, Tim Robbins, I'm sorry, Sean Penn beats Bill Murray in Lost in Translation, which Ooh. was probably his one... How did, he, how did Sean Penn win this? Award? Yeah, what? It's crazy this, to me. <laughs> this, was a, this was a very close Oscar race. This was a, like, Kate Blanchett, Michelle Yeoh, Mm. very close Oscar race between the two where it was kind of being treated by like some pundits as like the de facto way to determine who would win best picture. If it wasn't the fucking return of the King year um, uh, yes. between lost in translation and mystic river. Uh, but it was those two guys. Um, it was Johnny Depp in pirates, of the Caribbean, the first one. Hell yeah. Probably the right winner. That's that's um, my winner that year. Yeah, and that I have not seen these two movies, but the other two nominees are Jude Law 
in Cold Mountain and uh, Ben Kingsley in House and Sand and Fog. Cold Mountain has a very big Nicole Kidman, I'm pretty sure. That's I what I hear. I mean, I know the big one is because she gets nominated for that and then Renee Zellweger wins. I mean, big uh, as in the performance is very large. Every Nicole Kidman performance (laughs) is big. (laughs) Nicole Kidman gave a big performance in a Yorgos Lanthimos. She's also a tall woman. She's She's also a tall woman. She's a tall woman. I love Nicole Kidman. I would like to stop seeing her every time I go see a movie. I'm just getting a little tired of the gang. You're alone there. It's been a year and a half. When's the sequel uh, coming out? I know they wrote it. Uh, they I announced a sequel, and I bet yeah. I does AMC not have enough money to shoot it? I guess is I issue. don't trust That's... Billy Ray to write a knowingly campy <laughs> Nicole Kidman promo. <laughs> but anyway, back to Colin. I, I I had this thought watching it, and Joel Schumacher said some stuff in some of the contemporary interviews I found about this. You know, we. In the very first episode of this podcast, Connor, mm-hmm. we compared Colin Farrell to Jennifer Lawrence in that they yep. both become really, really famous, really young. Um, and we were kind of comparing how, like, it kind of does seem to land for Jennifer Lawrence, and then she falters. Whereas Colin, it's a lot of faltering under the expectations <laughs> until he can almost age out of it. And become serious. And I was thinking about watching this movie is I don't care for any of those early Jennifer Lawrence performances. I think they're really shaky and really flat. The movie that convinced me that Jennifer Lawrence is a good actress is Mother. And Mm. it's not just because of how dynamic and fun and exciting that performance is. Another Matthew Lee Batik motion picture, by the way. It's quieter Uh, than I think most people remember. It's quieter. It's that she's on camera for almost every single frame of that. She's in every frame, right? She's not, no, she's not in literally every frame. She's probably in about as much percentage wise as Colin is in this. But that's the point I want to make. That's a great comparison. If you have to carry a movie to that degree and the movie is good, and I think both those movies are great, you are a good actor and it is a great performance mm-hmm. that is so hard colin does not have anyone else to pick up the fat the flack on this movie from him you know roger ebert said in his review that he said this movie rests entirely on Kiefer's shoulders because if the voice doesn't work the movie doesn't work and i disagree with roger ebert rest in peace i think this colin this movie is make or break on the strength of colin farrell's performance i get what ebert means i think it's under i think he, yeah i I understand the intent of what he's saying because if you have a voice that's not as dynamic and commanding as Kiefer Sutherland's, then it just doesn't work. And I don't know if you had a chance to watch the um, making of special features. I watched a little. Of it. You can so they so Kiefer Sutherland got cast after they filmed finished yes. filming this. Yeah, because he was I think working on the first season of Twenty Four, and yeah. then he was able to record all the lines. But they had cast a different actor, and I do not know who that actor was. Did they say um, the name? I I. I, they don't mention in that behind the scenes feature, but I found just like on a other weird tangent because I was trying to figure out what watch he was wearing and I just I couldn't find yeah. the actual identity of the watch. But I found an interview with um, uh, Daniel. Sorry, what's his last name? Uh, Daniel Orlandi, the costume designer for the film. And he was talking about how um, 
and this I could kind of get into a recap of how this film was made, but they only shot this film in 11 days. They did one day in New York City right before Thanksgiving. And then you can't film. I don't know if this is a rule to this day, but at the time you could not film on the streets of New York City um, between Thanksgiving and Christmas because the streets are too busy. So they went to Los Angeles and like rebuilt 53rd Street on 5th Street and what? Can I Fifth Street in Los Angeles? You want you want to say something? Uh, no, I I I find that interesting. I found a totally different reason why they shot in L.A. Oh, really? Uh, and I don't. Oh, I, interesting. I, I think this is just interesting in you know the Rashomoning of how these movies are produced. Yeah. I saw an interview <laughs> with Joel Schumacher. I think at like later in his career, where he said it was just too fucking cold. Um, That's probably that true. They also. shot they shot that one day in Times Square the opening scene of this movie and they were just like we can't we have too many extras who can't be wearing winter coats it's november in new york in manhattan <laughs> yeah. we have to we have to go to california um so it's interesting it's interesting they have two different reasons why they shot this in la do you know yeah, what time kind of, of year they shot this? november they shot it in between thanksgiving and, yeah. and christmas i think well, like probably the last probably like the last few days of November and the first like week of December is when they shot. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. I feel like lighting wise also, it makes more sense to shoot in Los Angeles. I don't know. I mean, it gets very gray and this movie's super desaturated, but well, there's a ton with Libatique in the uh, making of doc where they actually had to create all these diffusers over the fake 53rd street that they built on fifth street in Los Angeles because the buildings weren't tall enough. Yeah. And Libatique is like, Uh. In New York, you just have these caverns of shadow because the buildings are so tall and you need to find a way to have the light bounce around the exteriors of the buildings while also like covering everybody down on the base level of the street in shadow. So they had to create all these um, like huge workarounds to be able to do that. Um, The other thing is just that they say in the in the thing in the doc that um, the sun was setting at like 430 every day. So they only had it was a very this is a very troublesome shoot for them to shoot 10 days in L.A. only until 430 p.m. every day, starting around like 7 a.m. They had to shoot about 12 pages of script every single day. This is this is a thing I saw uh, Joel Schumacher say in the press for this movie, which is like someone asked him if Colin Farrell's a good actor because the second time they worked together and Joel Schumacher basically said, if if someone's going to go in there and stand in a phone booth and blurt out 14 pages of dialogue in a day and make it work they're a good actor yeah right yes and i mean like, this this whole script is dialogue essentially this whole script is, <laughs> but it's all one sentence. and to go back to that thing i i saw the kefir was later i saw that he was playing live off someone on the other end of the phone right like they were it wasn't even like a pa off screen yeah. He's actually speaking to somebody in the phone. It was a different set. actor that they had. Hired. I couldn't find who it was, but I did see somewhere and I found no verification. Of this. It might've even been IMDb trivia, but I saw someone suggest that they were at one point, at least considering Roger Jackson. That's and what I was going to say. Watching it this him. time, yeah. I was like, fuck, because I mean, we are recording this the day before scream six comes out. So scream is on my <laughs> mind and I was watching it. Do you, do you know who Roger Jackson is Connor? Yes, the uh, yeah, yeah. he's the, the voice actor man, I can't who do does <laughs> Mr. Ghostface. Yeah, he's he does the Ghostface voice for in this every screen movie. He's the what's your favorite scary movie, Sydney guy. Kiefer Sutherland is doing a Roger Jackson impression in this movie, right? Like he's he's way more gravelly 
than he is, I think, in his normal voice. And he's trying to like emulate that. The fact that Roger Jackson's voice sounds staticky when he's doing the Ghostface voice. And you kind of are like, it would suck if it was just Ghostface on the other end of the phone. He is, but, but have, also... you, have you interacted with any of the other things that Kiefer Sutherland has done voice acting for? Because his voice not, no. always seems to sound like this in the other things that he's done voice acting for. Maybe. He does, Um. Uh. he is, I can't remember. In Metal Gear Solid 5, he's one of the snakes. Whatever the older <laughs> snake's name is. Oh, yeah. That's who he is in Metal Gear big Solid boss. 5. Yeah, big boss. Um. Except you... Oh, man, I just spoiled my metal. I've never played one everybody. of them. Um, oh no, Big Boss is the protagonist of five. That's the twist, isn't it? The the twist in five is that there are actually two big bosses, and that in Metal Gear, <sighs> not Metal Gear Solid, the Metal Gear, like the 2D top-down game that preceded Metal Gear Solid, Solid Snake kills Big Boss. And then Big Boss is, comes back in Metal Gear Solid 4 and it's really confusing because you think he already died. So in Metal Gear Solid 5, they they reveal that there were two... They brainwashed a, a Vietnam vet, I believe, who got shot down in a helicopter to think that he was also Big Boss and he became a second Big Boss. Kojima, but, Kojima is just a great case study for why children need to be bullied more in school. <laughs> um, that's why you know Kojima but long story short, <laughs> Kiefer Sutherland uh, is big boss in Metal Gear Solid Five. He's also does almost like all of the generals in Call of Duty World at War, and he sounds just like oh, this. Okay, yeah. yeah, it's. I don't think Kiefer's bad in this movie. I like. I it. think it's. I hate. I hate how he's mixed. I do you know too. what I'm saying. I don't, it's for, so. It sticks out so it's much. It's so clear and it's so loud and it doesn't sound like it's coming out of the phone. It's it feels not like scary ASMR. because of how yeah. clear it is. And you know it almost I mean? feels like, I, I think the idea is that they're trying to go for this like voice of a vengeful God thing. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't think it translates beyond that. I don't think he's bad. I actually really enjoy how much of a sense of humor the character has. There's a few bits where he's trying to do spooky voice and he gets the giggles. Um, (laughs) I think it's a brilliant choice on Kiefer's part. He's kind of a one note performance though. Right. I don't think it is. I think he, uh, I I think Colin, I think Colin is, I mean, it's hard to say because Colin's not playing off him. Right. You yeah. always, I always want to see, I would love to see the original cut of this movie with whoever is actually doing the lines. Right. Without, uh, yeah. The, yeah, without it over. It's like the, the Samantha Morton cut of yeah. her. Yeah. Do you guys know about the Samantha Morton cut of her? One of my dreams. That they replaced her with uh, ScarJo. In post, yeah. Do you know this, yeah. Jake? No. Samantha but was Morton. It, am I wrong? But was Samantha Morton on set while they were filming? Samantha, she would do the lines on set. Or Samantha Morton was originally cast as the AI in her, and she is on set. Yeah. Um, oh, like, and that's who. But she wasn't just a stand-in; it was her. She was hired for the movie, um, and she's on set live playing off Joaquin. Um, and in post, they just didn't particularly like how it was turning out. So they hired ScarJo to come in and overdub her and also give a different performance. Like that was part of the decision. Mm. Um, and I would just love to see it. I would love to see the one that Colin's live reacting on just because this is a podcast about Colin Farrell. I'm watching this movie. I'm thinking about Colin Farrell. I would like 
to have a better sense of what he's actually doing in like a labored sense as a performer, you know, because the Kiefer thing is so obviously disconnected, you know, sitting there thinking about that in this, this viewing for this podcast, I was a little, you know, hung up on the fact that they're not ever acting together. There are clearly points where you could tell that it's not overlapping the way yeah. it initially had when mm-hmm. they filmed it. Or but you I don't think it hurts the movie. But it's, it's I think, pretty obvious. I think I'm just being overly granular for today. This is like, that's the third collaboration between Kiefer and Joel, right? It's What's the second? The fourth. A Time Flat to Kill, Flatliners. Oh, he's Flatliners. in a Time to Kill, he's in Flatliners. And The Lost Boys, of course, yeah. He's so only, yeah the Lost Boys, no. I have seen Flatliners. <sighs> <laughs> I couldn't tell you a thing about it, uh, but I've seen it. It doesn't really exist. Did you go see Jake? Did you go see that fucking seventy millimeter blow up of Flatliners? The music box was showing last year. No, I Am wasn't I... in Chicago. It would oh, be so funny Chicago? if it was no, no. the uh, the twenty seventeen or whatever. No, no, no. It was <laughs> no, 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 no. It was. Oh yeah, it was remade. I the, totally... the music box. But it's not a remake. It's a sequel. It's a sequel. It's a sequel. Kiefer Sutherland is in the. Oh, I haven't fuck. seen it, but Kiefer fuck Sutherland me, is dude. in it as the same character from the first. Last That's insane. Year, last year, the music box in Chicago, the most overrated theater in Chicago. Oh, um, how dare you? It sucks. Um, last year, the music box showed a 70 millimeter blow up the Joel Schumacher movie Flatliners. I don't live in Chicago anymore, but I was like, what the fuck when I heard that? Um, because why is there a, why is there a <laughs> 70 millimeter blow up of Flatliners? Um, and I did, I, I, I know some people who work at the, I know some people who know some people who work in the music box. I did some poking. I think it might've been like a personal print that like Schumacher had struck for oh, some collection be. or something. It was something like that. It was a vanity print that was from a private collection from someone I think attached to the movie. Um, Flatliners sucks though. Uh, the one bad Joel Schumacher movie. That's my hot take. Uh, you think A Time to Kill is good? I watched it once when I was young. It's so tasteless. Here's here's the thing about A Time to Kill. is Have you seen any other John Grisham adaptation? Um, yes, I have. Yeah, yeah. You can't tell me A Time to Kill is bad. No, but they're all... <laughs> The, they're all, all the ones, bad all the ones I've seen are bad. The, but the, the client is probably ones, the best one of the ones that I have seen. The other ones are bad because they're incredibly boring. I have not seen the Rainmaker, and oh, the Rainmaker is mind-numbingly dull. Uh, a Time to Kill is like bad because it's tasteless. The firm is just the, so weird, boring. <laughs> the, the form is, is just... inexplicably long. It's so did I tell weird. you, Connor? I told you there was a. TV show sequel to The Firm starring yeah, Josh we were... Lucas as the Tom Cruise character, right? Yeah. Jesus. It, and was it like, ran for like one season. It ran said? for one season, like I think yeah. five years ago, yeah. where like he goes out of witness protection and starts a, and joins a new law firm that is also have mob connections or some shit. All that makes me think of is the um the once the USA network one season of the show Treadstone about the program that Jason Bourne was. Oh, in. right, right, right. Oh my god, really? Yeah. <laughs> but Colin, bring this back to Colin Farrell. And then I wait, do wait, wait, I wanna Joel. let me let me just let me just recap the production mm-hmm. um things just so we could get through it real quick. Um so they would shoot about 12 pages every day. They had four cameras rolling on most of the takes. For context listeners. 
Hollywood considers one and a half to two pages a like sensible schedule. Eight pages a day is the standard for like a soap opera. Yeah. Is eight mm. pages. So 12 pages yeah. a day for 12 a feature like film being shot by Matthew Liebatique is insanity. Um, yeah. Uh, they Yeah. And they would use four cameras on every take, which is most films. Yeah, you could. And it, but it looks good. They all, yeah, look no, good. No. I think all the angles look good. Yeah. And um, most filmmakers, most auteur filmmakers use one camera. Ridley Scott uses two cameras. Scorsese uses two cameras. Some some of the older ones yeah. use two cameras. The I think they I think they prefer Scorsese prefers two cameras because he gets so into the um he gets so into the machinery of like dialogue scenes yeah. and the acting that's going mm-hmm. on. And I think he wants to be able to match them easier. Elaine, yeah, I think it's also maybe the the Elaine May thing. Um, because Elaine May always shot with two cameras and I know Apatow shoots with two cameras and he cites Elaine May's this. And I think it's the same for Scorsese, which is just that if something interesting happens in a take, it's better to have a second angle of it than to try to mm-hmm. get that actor to replicate it next time. And Definitely. especially if you're Scorsese and your movies are so fucking long and you shoot so many masters, which Scorsese does. And, and you allow improv does, in the way. If you think does. as well, right. that, like if we're saying yeah. this movie shot with four cameras, that's four lengthy takes of Colin in a phone booth, right? You want as much footage of him giving a single take as possible. Uh, it helps the performance, I think. It helps the editing, really. But let me, but let, yeah. let me phrase it this way. Scorsese and like Michael Mann use two cameras when they're shooting yes. like over the shoulder because yes. they want to get the reality of the conversation yes. that's taking place. They they would not use more than one camera typically to do the kind of um, mobile movements, the the stylization that's yes. going on here. Um, and that's what makes it so interesting. And and just to use four cameras uh, for anybody who hasn't attempted to make a film, it's it's so difficult to block the shots off without getting catching one yeah. of the other cameras in the shot um it makes everything more difficult it's 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 a multiplication it's not an addition of the difficulty it takes to get these things done and um the other thing that or there's two more things that i just find astounding one is that they would libatik would essentially run the magazines as long as he could so they could get through as much of the script on each take so they would they would go through up to 8 pages of dialogue on each take it was like a stage play to them mm-hmm. out there and i think that's why if you look at any interviews of any crew members who worked on this film or other actors they kind of rave about Colin Farrell and the other actors that were involved in this because they were able to get through those lines consistently they were able to do they were able to get their performances off in a way that was consistent with each take. Um, Even though they were stretching huge amounts of the story each time they rolled the camera. And then the last thing that I just personally found interesting was that um, I read on Wikipedia that they adopted French hours to get this made, uh, which Mm. means they did not break for lunch, but they had food available at all times. And as someone who's worked on a few productions, I, I would just love to have catering available <laughs> at all times throughout the day. Totally. I'm kind of iffy on it from a labor perspective, but like you said, when you are concerned about light, like this movie is, and you are sure. in such a tight schedule, um, it, it does allow you to get the movie done in 10 days. Two things I wanted to say about the production are first that, and I think this, this is why Colin's so good in this movie. They shot for 10 days, but they did three weeks of rehearsals. 
mm-hmm. which is a luxury, right? And I think that's the the concession that Joel makes is as a director is that he basically trades in shooting days to the studio to Fox and gets rehearsal days and extension because he knows like at the end of the day it's make or break it on on this one guy's back and having an extra week to shoot isn't really going to solve that problem if he's not there the other thing and i just think this is fucking insane um we said they shot for a day in new york the first 10 minutes of this movie are colin walking through times square up to 53rd street um, so like 10 blocks, basically having phone calls, shouting at people on the street, having these conversations, it's not a one but it is like a continuous real time, you know, moving up, uptown. Um, they did not shoot that in a day, Connor. They shot that in a morning. Yeah. 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 They shot that before lunch. They shot that before lunch. I read an interview crazy. with him where he was like, yeah, we did. We did it where Joel was like, we did a day in Times Square. Man, we did That's a complicated a shot. We did half a day. Well, but it's not if you think about it, because what it actually is, is nothing's closed off. Those are all real extras. And Lee Batik's just doing his handheld shit, right? Like that is you like saying fuck it and just shooting right. the movie in Times Square, which is so funny because this is a year after Vanilla Sky which has that famously insane shot where they empty out Times Square. But it is kind of like, it's the blessing of Colin being still a little unrecognizable. You right. think you that, know, um, a year later, they can't do that. Do you think that opening is 80 yard? Or do you think they, they got sound? While doing I thought that? that as well. I cannot um, imagine. I just it's cannot gotta imagine. It's got to be. Sound hey, Connor, you ever been in Times Square? <laughs> I try. I avoid it like the plague. I avoid it like the plague. <laughs> but too. unfortunately, I've been to Times Square before. Uh, yeah, that's got to be all eighty yard. Um, thankfully, a lot if, of it is punches. Can I just say, total sidebar? Have any of you guys seen all the beauty and the bloodshed yet? No, no, I've been dying to though. It's so good because it just hit VOD. Mm-hmm. What um, service? Or, or is it on? It's just rentable. It's just finally okay. rentable on VOD. Nice, nice. Um, it's neon, so it's probably going to be on Showtime whenever, in a couple months. Um, AKA but, non-existent. Yeah. I, I every Showtime. so often re-up my Showtime subscription just to watch the neon movies. Um, it'll get a Criterion release this year. Um, right. All the fucking, like, history stuff in that movie in the 70s and 80s, where it's just all the the pre-disnification Times Square footage in that movie where they are like Times Square is like the haven for the gays and the freaks and the weirdos and the artists and then immediately I watched that a few days ago immediately coming back and watching this movie which really is like really capturing the moment Times Square becomes hell on earth which it is Jake I don't know if you've ever been there I have Um, had the dubious choice to not go there when I visited New York City yeah uh, it's awful. Um, but yeah, just the fact that they really were able to just like spend four hours with Colin walking through Times Square. That's incredible. Uh, with, with, with really what is with Maddie Liebatique with a hand on, with a steady cam in Colin's face and a PA walking behind him to make sure he doesn't back into anybody. Um, it's just a really impressive scene. And it's, it's what we were talking about in the Tigerland episode, Connor, that, that Liebatique just, when he's in his element and he can really just capture these very loose, almost not improvised in an actoral sense, but improvised in a compositional sense images, 
he's like the best cinematographer in the game. Really. I wanted to ask you guys about Libatique. Yeah. I mean, because obviously this entire land looked great, but he's gone. I, I think Star is Born and Mother are my favorite thing he's, things he's ever shot. And they're so undeniably gorgeous. And he, he adapts that docu-style of filmmaking, specifically in Star is Born, to capture those lived-in yeah. uh, interactions between characters. And then he's shot some of the ugliest blockbusters that I don't necessarily blame him for. And this is a complete sidebar, but like Venom and the Iron Man movies, like I think look like shit. And so does he, is it entirely like, he's such a adaptable cinematographer, but should he not do blockbusters anymore? Is my point. Um, I don't I think mean, any actually, cinematographer should. Yeah. That, that's Fair point enough. one. Point two is actually do think Iron Man 2 looks really good. Um, I haven't seen it in maybe 15 Oh, when years. he's sitting on the donut? I, I, Iron Man 2 is you know like quietly one of the better looking Marvel movies. Um, he shot the first a, one though, didn't he? Iron Man 1 is not a very good looking movie, yeah, it but looks it awful. works with his strengths. Sure. Iron Man 2, he also shot the second one. 2 looks really good, I think. Um, you know, my take on Lee Petit is really like, you, you kind of need to meet him halfway. And that can be leaning in to the to the like documentary style free flow of it, or that can be doing what I think Aronofsky does, which is trying to rein it in. But if you're not mm-hmm. really like working with Lee Batik, if you're just hiring him to do his thing and you, the director, are not somehow integrating with his style, nothing comes of it. And it's a problem. I'll um, make a jab. At yeah. what I think happens with him. I think Libatique fully buys into the fact that he is a tool for the director and it's yes. his duty to create the director's vision and to manifest the director's vision and not his own. Whereas you look at some of our most celebrated cinematographers, um, especially those working today, they kind of carry over the same aesthetic or similar techniques from film to film, regardless of what the director is necessarily looking for. Libatique definitely doesn't do that and i think when he's working with somebody that's such a visual mind like aronofsky or even uh schumacher in this case when he's given when when he's given the inspiration of a director's vision in that way he's able to achieve things that are unbelievable but when he's working within that very confined tentpole blockbuster ecosystem i i don't think he i i don't think and I've never met the man. I've never spoken to him, but just from based off of what I've read in interviews and what I've seen in interviews, he doesn't seem like the kind of person that um, is willing to like border on sabotaging a project to get his own ideas across when he doesn't consider himself the author of the film. You know, what I, mean? I, mean, I think we, that's true. We yeah. did in fact see what happened when he did have to make himself more of the author of the movie, uh, allegedly, because he allegedly ghost directed. Don't worry, darling. Um, oh, that is, that is a big part of those rumors is that he he and Pew are basically de facto directing that movie, uh, and that movie kind of looks messy. And um, that movie doesn't look good, though. But also to, to to push back against that movie does not look good. Uh, to push back against, I I I don't think Jake, it's the blockbusters you're identifying. I think you're identifying the symptom not the the disease here because i think connor's right it's a director problem and most blockbuster mm. directors these days are 
have nothing in the tank. Um, you don't have to like birds of prey. Plenty of people don't. Uh, but if you're going to tell me birds of prey looks bad, you are lying to me straight up. Birds of prey is a beautiful movie. Okay. Uh, I love birds of prey. Yeah, I, love I, of I know. Prey. I'm just saying like plenty of people don't like birds of prey. If you want to tell me birds of prey is an incoherent reshot mess of a movie, I am not going to disagree with you. I'm just going to ask if you don't like fun, but that birds of prey can juggle this like beautiful, almost sappy esque, like woman on the streets of Manhattan footage and the sort of Burton inspired, like cartoon Gothic somehow in the same movie. That is, I mean, that is Kathy Yan. A lot of that is her as a visual styles, but that's her working with Lee Batik to, I think, create this very hyper-specific visual language. Mm-hmm. This movie phone booth. I think this movie looks incredible. Yeah. Thoughts. I think this movie is presented in a manner that made me really regret not seeing it earlier. Yeah. Not necessarily earlier in my life, but earlier when the experimental aspects of this film were, were more mind blowing. Yeah. So I've been watching the Boyle movies week to week and like that late nineties, early two thousand editorial choices by Boyle. Um, it might just be recency bias that I've, I've been watching these movies so often, like in a life less ordinary and the beach, particularly directors would like really love to show duplicate frames on screen. And in this movie, it looks great in my, it, it's positively dated for 2002 and the symmetry of everything bothered me a bit, but the messiness of that is part of why I liked it. And, and Boyle might do it slightly better uh i love Arguably. i love the i love the like gangly awkward insert frames like picture it's not full split screen shots in this in this movie for listeners who haven't seen it whenever colin's on the phone with someone who isn't uh the Kiefer sutherland character we get like a picture in picture overlay second frame that obscures some of the frame but never touches the borders right and it really look it really has eye movie energy is the best way it does. to do it. it it looks like someone whose first exposure to a non-linear editing software is fucking around but that is what it is like this is what i think you're identifying with the boil comparison is people when people talk about analog versus digital filmmaking I have always believed that people talk too much about capture formats, that 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 debate is is too focused on did you shoot it on film or did you shoot it on DV? And then a little bit, are you screening it on film and are are you screening it on DV? To me, that is secondary. Every single Hollywood film made basically in the past 20 years, including your beloved Paul Thomas Anderson and Quentin Tarantino movies are digital cinema because they are cut on digital nonlinear platforms. That was the real revolution moving from a Studebaker to Avid. And you're seeing that in the Boyle films. I think that sense of the, the, the freedom that comes from having, they call it a nonlinear system for a reason, right? Jake, you know what I'm talking about? Um, Mm -hmm. The, the freedom that comes from being able to just do anything with any of the footage you have basically at 
a snap of your finger. And I think this movie, and not just with the overlays, but just with the editing rhythms, with the fact that they can cross cut between the four cameras, the the hard transitions to, I think, the actual sneaks of DV footage in this movie that scan the New York City skylines. Um, there, there is a liberatory aspect to the the avid of it all that I think you can see in here. And I think that is the big influence aesthetically, I think, that you see this movie passed down to Tony Scott and Michael Mann, that it is really like putting its foot down with that sort of high octane editing rhythms. Totally. Yeah. And you can feel Boyle and, and Schumacher. Yeah having this digital freedom and they're just kind of throwing it at the wall and making it as a kind of a character in and of itself stylistically in the film. And it's, that's like a perfect early 2000s time capsule of, of editorial choices. I just love. And part of why I think this movie is so it's so dated, but it's still, it it just represents a creative point in film that I I absolutely love. It's also, and this is, I think is more Libati than Schumacher, but it's also doing the thing that Tony Scott, I think really makes his signature, which is actually trying to make images captured on film look like they're digitally captured. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, And part of it is the the blue, the the very washed out blue filters they're putting in all this image because they did shoot this movie on film like Connor was addressing that but another mm-hmm. part of it is really embracing um you know the sort of thing that Kaminsky loves to replicate but the the super blown out nature of the sky yes right? and I feel like most Hollywood movies are going to try to have your sky look prettier whereas this movie actually wants that sort of hyper contrast that you get from pointing a video camera at the sky where it just becomes this like unpleasant mass of white up there. And it is like the, the, the beauty of digital video capture is so much in its ugliness. And this is Libatique really trying to find that and replicate that in, uh, in on film. And I think you said Domino, like I think you do see a lot of those blown out colors become a major play in Tony Scott's, filmography even though he never shoots digitally until mm-hmm. the day he dies I'll, and that's why i'll he's say the best. That's what i'll God, say God this uh i think what libatik is aiming for is because this movie has a little bit to say not a ton but a little bit to say about the um the way that media mass media television media functions and and how people react to what's going on in society and i think he's he's aiming for a little bit of that newsreel type mm-hmm. feel. Um, but then on the other yes. side of it, I also feel when I was watching this, I was like, is this the beginning of every quote unquote hip, um, like live television broadcast uh, program, like TRL or entertainment yeah. weekly, how they're like punching in, punching out of all this like B roll footage. Um, but that's... I wonder how much this played into that kind of taking over. I, I again, I think versa. I think it's avid. Yeah. I think that is so much of that is avid, and you're just seeing this movie like locking into those obvious possibilities that avid mm-hmm. gives you. As I know, but somebody had yeah. to do it. Somebody yeah. had to unlock that for everybody but, else. You know? Yeah, I mean? and I mean, yeah. I I don't want to say with too much as the oldest person on this call. Uh, I don't want to say with too much authority vis-a-vis did that event that because TRL's been around for a few years. Um, but your newsreel comment, Connor. I said on Tigerland 
that a lot of the texture of the 16 millimeter photography in Tigerland really felt like it was trying to capture authentic 16 millimeter palettes and tones of the era um, in a way that I find very beautiful in Tigerland. Whereas this one, I do think is trying to capture the grotesqueries of shot on video news footage of, of, you know, the turn of the century, like a post 9-11, like media feeding frenzy. I think Jake, you had said something about this being kind of about like a fear of the news media. Yeah. Do you want to elaborate on that a little? Yeah. And coupled with that, I mean, okay. For, yeah. First let's talk about the news media thing. And it really struck a chord when, in the beginning when Colin is sort of making his way through Times Square and you see how he operates and how he interacts and how he kind of uses his clout and wealth and authority with celebrities to exchange uh, information like he does with the guy from The Wire. Um, where I'm going to Glumberdazzo! I apologize. I forgot his name. He's excellent. I, I, I love that guy. I he's love in Armageddon time. He's excellent. Um, he's Christ, Connor, did you see Armageddon Time? I'm so bad on the 2022 films Dude, right now. You were, first of all, Connor, you specifically, I think, are going to love Armageddon Time. It's so beautiful. Yeah. But 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 Dom Lombardazzo shows up for like a one scene role at the end of Armageddon mm-hmm. Time that is like the fulcrum point of that movie. And he just fucking shoves that movie in a bag, <laughs> throws it over his shoulder, walks out of the room with it. He's picking up what I'm putting down. <laughs> I love Dom Lombardazzo. He has. Have you guys seen The Wire? Yes. Yeah. 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 I think Herc is like quietly the hardest character to play on The Wire. Interesting. Because he's so he he is so obviously like the face of police brutality and racism and all those things in as he's introduced. And then he has to be like an actual character with layers for the entire run of the show. That he he can't just be the cheap villain. Like no one else, I think, in the first season of The Wire is set up that unsympathetically in that show. Uh, and that he makes it a real person and kind of weirdly gets you on his side as, as this guy like grows and becomes a better person. He's mm. not my favorite performance, I'm saying, but that's the like, got RIP to Michael K. Williams, wonderful in The Wire. Omar's an easy performance. Herc is a difficult performance because it's so... Yeah. There, it's so morally complicated, and he he walks that line so often. I just love it whenever I see this guy pop up, and it's great to see him show up for like two words, in, right. as a as a like a low level beat cop feeding gossip to <laughs> to people in Times Square. It's so great, it's uh, so great. He could be just the perfect analog for like just either a New York scum or a slightly sympathetic, as you were alluding to in The yeah. Wire and Armageddon Time. Um, yeah, yeah I, the Armageddon time performance, man. That's there, there's so much going on in that scene. I know that's, that's uh, again a, a, a performance that does not, I think, take the easy out of letting the audience just easily hate this guy. Um, because it, it, it is more interesting. The, the cop he plays a cop, Connor, the cop he plays at the end of Armageddon time, it would be easy for that guy to be just a piece of shit. And what, what Gray gets, James Gray gets, and what Dom Lumberdazzo gets is that it's way more interesting if that guy's kind of just 
a vaguely amicable guy who is completely in service for an evil system, that it's the structure that's corrupt, not this one guy in particular. Ugh. Sorry, sorry. You got a Darmageddon. No, I brought up Armageddon time. Yeah, no, this is a bad. This is by this point in the year, I would have never have not seen every major film from it the year before. And this is just released. a year. Fair enough. I'm it got a bad release. Much. Yeah. I'm well, even no, no, like just, yeah. just not even Armageddon time. Like I am. I mean, the Academy Awards are this weekend. It's like, and again, yeah. we're recording. We're going to ahead of when that, this. By the way. We're recording ahead yes, of when this um, podcast is going to release. And usually by this week, I've seen everything, like even past the Academy Award nominees. I've just seen yeah. every every major film that's ended up on like top of the year list yeah. and major publications, things like that. Just a lot busier this last yeah. year than I anticipated enough. being. Yeah, yeah. Um, But if you want to circle back to, yeah. to what I was saying about the tabloid Sorry. issue. No, no. I, I Armageddon Time's incredible. I, I will talk about that, too. Um. But yeah, like it's not it's super on the nose, just the, the the nature of how he conducts business. But and that leading into how much of an artificial person and sort of superficial person that Colin Farrell has become like one of the major lines I think I quoted on Letterboxd is that he's more he's more concerned about his raspberry, raspberry sorbet suit that he is with the infidelity that he's committing with his wife and the, the pizza man that he just dismissed. Um, so I think the obsession with celebrity culture in this movie, I think is really interesting that he explores. And Joel shocks me as someone who deeply cares about the actors he works with more than any other, I guess, blockbuster filmmaker. Just the fact that he works with the same people over and over again. And he's, he just seems like a very delicate person. So I think, yeah. And and it, it is more meta knowing the path that Colin goes down after this movie. So there were... I would gander that uh, if the cast and crew did not like working with Joel Schumacher as much as they did, they would have not signed up to yeah. work on this yeah. film under the conditions. There, yeah, there are uh, contemporary interviews tied to this movie's release in which Colin refers to Joel Schumacher as his like mentor. Um, and I think that those two men had a very, very good relationship, even if they only work together once more after this and it's a cameo. I mean, that does speak to uh, how good of a relationship they had that Colin, the one time Colin has ever cameoed in a movie. What's uh, that? Veronica Guerin. Okay, okay. Which is the movie Joel Schumacher makes right after this or maybe after Phantom. Um, I can't remember where it falls. It's because, right. No, it's right after yeah. this. And it also comes out in 2003. Yeah. Which we will, we will be discussing on this show. This is um, the first of six feral movies to release in 2003. Yeah. That was the other thing I was thinking about is, you know, I've been calling 2022 the year of Colin Farrell. Um, but yes, there are six Colin Farrell movies uh, that come out in 2003. If you can, he was a, uh, and he was dating Britney Spears and dating Britney yeah. the mother of his son this was pregnant is, with his son. You can see it in discussions of him around the time that he, this is when we've been talking about the sense of like, it. we're waiting as we go through these earlier movies of like, when's it going to hit for this guy? And Connor, you've been like, why are they giving him so many chances when he has all these flops? And I'm like, he's so hot. When is everyone going to realize how hot he is? And it really does feel like the damn fucking breaks immediately. And he's 
everywhere for like a year and a half. And you can see this sense of almost resentment in reviews of this movie where it feels like they're already getting sick of Colin Farrell, which I think is partially because this recruit daredevil. This is a three month window. Um, So he's just in so many things, but I think it's got to also be the tabloid stuff. You know, that he's dating Britney Spears, that he's, though he's broken up with Britney Spears by the time this movie comes out. Um, Because he's with, I don't know if he's with, I'm blanking on her name, the model he has his first son with. Um, Because it's it's public that she's expecting when he's promoting this movie. I I don't believe he's with her. Her name is Kim Bordenov. Yeah, thank you. I do wonder if this movie might have been received a little better had it come out first like it was supposed to. Like, if this was received as the, like, inauguration of Colin Farrell coming off Minority Report, he's the real movie star, instead of the third Colin Farrell movie in three months. Would people have liked it more? Because, again, I just think this is such an exciting performance. Like, I, I can't imagine how you could walk away from this movie and not be raving about Colin Farrell unless you're coming into this movie sick of Colin Farrell, like the Jude Law yeah. thing. Because, you know, the, the year after this, uh, 2004, that's the year Jude Law is in six movies. And that kind of famously kills Jude Law's career. Yeah. Um, because I think that notion that Jude Law is everywhere sticks to Jude Law in a way it doesn't stick to Colin Farrell. There's a famous bit of the Oscars about it. Um, uh, but people like oversaturation can hurt people. But like Colin is just the, the thing about this performance is he's not just scared. It's not just that he's playing scared the whole movie, right? You know, he's he really is like running through the full gamut of human emotions. He's yes. he's mocking, he's stressed, he's frightened, he's cocky. Like, and it, it, it's so believe. I believe for all that I think the script kind of like softens the edges on this guy, and you kind of want him to be a scumbag more than he is. I more so than any other character we've seen Colin play so far. I believe this is a real human being. I'm watching. And that he can do that mm-hmm. in a movie that gives him so little outs for anyone else to pick up the slack. I I almost don't have the language to describe it. I, I just really want to stress, and we're not talking about Colin this much in this episode. Incredible performance, fucking amazing. To add to that more on Colin, yeah. like this is as stylized as this movie is, this is like the first lived-in Colin Farrell performance that I've seen in his filmography. And yeah. Uh, one of the things I love about Colin so much is just his natural and innate chemistry with actors and just mm. the, the reverence he has for his co-stars and the people he works with. And it shows in this movie because just his interactions with even the prostitutes, <laughs> while being very aggressive, feel super authentic and like like ground level shit that could you could see on New York streets. And him interacting with Forrest Whitaker, which is a lot of it's a lot of speculation and like nothing set in stone because it's a very complicated situation. Yeah. But I think there's some great like visual acting between the two of them. Yeah. And I think it's the trust that they have in each other as actors. And as grueling as this shoot is, they still pull it off like in p- certain pickups and like certain reaction shots that I think are like sublimely good. Let me throw yeah. out something to you yeah i'm not prepared to do this but I'm, <laughs> hooker number one says god damn it man you done make me hurt my dick hand yeah <laughs> <laughs> I just call her. 
She also calls him Mr. Motherfucker as she's yeah. running around screaming. All, Colin Farrell says to hooker number two. Colin Farrell says to hooker number two, he says, get the fuck out of here before I call Hillary and have you deported to New Jersey. <laughs> that's it's amazing. That's such like a dumb guy shitty thing to say, though. It's so it's so funny. But, you know, Connor, we we kind of got into this on Menor Report where I floated the question of is Colin Farrell actually a movie star? Right. Yeah, yeah. Do, yeah. do you remember this conversation we had? Well, I think Justin uh, brought it up more than yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were, we were floating a bit, but Jake, I kind of floated this question of like, is Colin Farrell actually a movie star, or is he mm. just an actor who was so attractive that they tried to float him into movie star position? Well, it's hard to define now what movie star is. I think in it's, some manner, it's, in, yeah. it's a it's, bit of an intangible thing. I think. When we talk, I've been thinking about this because we actually recorded the episode two weeks ago. I've actually been ruminating on that tangent for the two weeks in between recording that episode and watching this movie this morning. Because I think when we say movie star, we are talking about two different things. We are talking about a famous person who can top line a movie. And we are talking about that intangible it superstardom, right? And and there are a lot of people who fall into the first camp. And there's not very many people who fall on the purest end of the second camp. And I feel like when we say there are no movie stars anymore, we are talking about the second camp. Because obviously, we have the Chris's, we have Ana to Armas, we have, we have so many famous people who can top line the movies. When we say there are no movie stars anymore, what we are saying is... If, if movie stardom is actually a spectrum between those two points, just being famous enough to top line a movie and being Tom Cruise or being Julia Roberts or being Denzel Washington, um, it's a spectrum to fall on there, right? And when we say there are no movie stars anymore, what we're really saying is they're all falling way too much to the low end of the spectrum. That they don't You're really not going have, out of your way yeah. to see... And, and the the movie star yeah. that I like to think of as as an indefinable whatever is somebody that is an attraction in and of themselves that I will yes. go to the movie to see them because right. I want to see what they're about to do and I'm not necessarily being let in by IP or by a pre-existing character yes. you know I think regardless of where we're going to be thinking about the rest of Colin Farrell's career. And regardless of what, to what degree he maybe over the course of the, you know, 25 years of his career has proven himself to be more of a talented and exciting, dramatic actor than a real mm. box office draw. Mm -hmm. If you can give a performance this exciting in a mainstream studio movie, where is basically just you, you are a movie star. That that is where I am coming down on this is Colin Farrell with movie star question. You you cannot carry a movie to this degree unless you have the juice. Even if you want to spend the rest of your career running from the juice, he may not have had the juice in American Outlaws. He might have been fighting against the juice. It's impossible to have the juice. In American <laughs> he might have been fighting against the juice in Minority Report and letting Tom do it. But you can't do this movie unless you are a movie star. Let me say, I'm high. I'm I'm definitely higher on him in Minority Report and in Tigerland than you and Justin. Are. I don't know. I don't think he's bad in Minority Report. I think he is 
intentionally not drawing attention to himself in that area. Mm. I think I just wish yeah. I, I almost wish we had I know I, Justin had to leave. I think yeah. I wish I had more time to get into it because I had things I was reading into his performance yeah. in minority report I, that I don't think and maybe that's just because I've studied uh Ireland and Irish stars place in film history a little bit more um, that I think there's aspects of that in that film that yeah. uh, the, the mainstream viewer doesn't necessarily latch Jake, on to. I don't know how recently you've seen Minority Report. Um, so Within like one to two years. Okay, so no, maybe, I, you, maybe you can't weigh in. For me, if it had been that long, I could have weighed in. My not. take on his performance in Minority Report, and this is what we're getting into, was I thought he was playing that so small and for the betterment of the performance and for the movie, but in a way that I think hurts his like stock as a box office draw. Like, I think the fact that we can't remember that he's in that movie is because he is more interested in giving a good performance than being a star in that movie. Okay. Yeah. And that was my hang up on that. And I think Justin was reading that more as he was failing at doing it. Mm. This, I think he manages to nail both. That I, that it feels like a real person. It is a totally lived-in performance, and he's just fucking radiating charisma and holding the camera, even though he's saddled with the worst haircut of his career. I need to preference, I need to preface <laughs> what I'm about to say. Yeah. Is that I think I watching this, I was like, it takes an actor of supreme confidence and supreme skill to pull off his breakdown at the end of the film. Um, to make it actually hit emotionally, which is not something that always happens in Schumacher's movies, mm-hmm. yeah. um, especially not in this ma- manner, and especially not without, especially with questionable narrative logic going on preceding it up to that yeah. point. Yeah. Um, I don't get the accent at all. And it, it really takes me, it really takes me out of it. I am past the point of caring. Truly, I, this one I, I, I'm not. The other one, it was easier for me, but this I, one, I I couldn't. He he doesn't sound like a real person to me. It really, I, I it required more of me to buy into what he was doing in terms of his acting process. I think <laughs> I started it. I started it, and I was like, "Ah, the accent's kind of dodgy again." It has not been good once. Um, it's fine. Hearts war. You you kind of stand by it in Hearts War. He he has never nailed an American accent without the Irish slipping in there. I started this one and I was like, you know what? And 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 within like the first five minutes of him like talking, and I kind of had the thought, he's not trying, and he's comfortable with what he's saying, and I think that matters to me more. The, the the honesty of the performance matters than him trying to wrestle the accent. And I think at this point, I've just given up on Colin Farrell nailing <laughs> the American accent. I just wish I just wish that he would have just gone for um, time, I wish he would have just gone for a down the middle American accent, like Maybe. a regionless American accent rather than attempting to do the Bronx. How he yeah, got that's fair. How, how he transitioned from this to the penguin um is uh, like beside 20 me. Years. I understand <laughs> that, but it's still Did like you... almost beside me because he is so like like we mentioned last week um, that video of him trying the makeup on for the first time and how he completely dissolves. Oh, away. yes. Uh, he he doesn't have that here. The um, heavy prosthetics of that, I think, aid our enjoyment of how ridiculous the accent in the Batman is. 
And this, he like can't hide it because it's so transparently not. They're like the Dublin stuff comes out so many times. It I just sounds like a. I didn't care. It's like much Tom Hardy to me when Tom Hardy yeah. tries to do American. What do you, you know? Guys... In, you know, in Venom, when he's like, "Your boss is hey. an evil person." Hey, <laughs> I'm, I'm Eddie Brock. I'm hey. Eddie Brock. Hey, hey I'm Venom. Doing... Hey, why are you doing so many crimes? Hey. <laughs> It's 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 a difficult thing to critique because I don't want to take away from the actual like revelatory work he's doing as an actor, because um, this is a cosmetic detail, you know, considering the performance. Mm-hmm. But it took me it took me a minute to brush it aside and really buy into what he was doing within the film. And maybe it's just because I've lived here my whole life, and you guys, yeah, yeah I think like, I hear that accent every single day. Uh, not his I, accent. I hear the real Bronx uh, accent every single. Time. I get. <laughs> so. I I can't get mad at anyone for getting hung up on accents because I get hung up on accents famously all the time. Um, I do love Tom Hardy's Eddie Brock accent though. Oh, it's so hear, phenomenal. I, I will broker no uh, criticisms. <laughs> Let um, me say something about Tom Hardy too. In the wrestler, it works because he's a guy like battling drug addiction. Oh, not the rest. The um, what's the fighting one? The warrior. MMA warrior? the warrior in the, warrior the best, is... the best movie ever made warrior <laughs> in warrior it works because he's a guy who's like actively battling drug addiction and i think that kind of rolling of of the consonants at the end of every word matches that when he's eddie brock it's so <laughs> would you, crazy would you like to hear my impression of tom and he's from san and... francisco he's from san francisco and he's eddie brock <laughs> would, would you like to hear my impression of tom hardy and warrior yeah, go for it. <laughs> I was gonna say he probably has a total of five discernible words in that whole movie, and it works I, I, tremendously. You want to hear my impression of Tom Hardy and Warrior? What? I'm a warrior. <laughs> I'm going to fight my brother. Did you guys see? Did you guys see Creed three? No, I haven't. I yet. did. It's very a lot of parallels to yeah, it's, Warrior. It's good, but it wants to be Warrior so bad. My friend said he saw it in like a sold out show. And near the end of the movie, he said someone started yelling, I'm your father, Brendan, at the screen. <laughs> <laughs> like that's, that's incredible. It is. Uh, good movie, Creed 3. Really I liked well Creed directed. 3. Yeah, really well directed. The fight scenes are incredible. The anime uh, stuff. Is the good. anime stuff is really rips. good. It's so good. You know what else is well directed is the uh, 2002 Joel Schumacher movie. Phone booth. So <laughs> would Joel Schumacher book? make your director's ballad of 2002? No, 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 no. I can pull it up here. No, no. I mean, be... I I do like this movie a lot. No, I first of all 2003 because uh, I go sorry. by I go by commercial release, not festival release. Um. No, because I, I like this movie quite a bit, but it's not like best of the year, I think. Who do I have? But I do just think Colin is just so exciting. Um, yeah, no, you want to hear you want to hear my my best director nominees for 2003? This is the most fucking Cole Bradley list of all time. Do it. OK, go for it. Andrew Bajalski For funny. Oh, funny. Aha uh-huh that year. Yeah. yeah. Jane Campion for In the Cut. In the Cut. Uh, Satoshi Kon, because Millennium Actress comes out in the United States in 2003. Mm. Uh, Lucky McKee for May, and then Jim Sheridan for In America. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's so on brand. I mean, I like Phone Booth a lot. I think I like this movie more than either of you two do. Um, is the vibe no? I I'm like getting. it. I appreciate yeah. it, but like I said, I appreciate it in that sense where it's a time capsule of what's mm-hmm. changing. Yeah. Um, I just, I I'm just a real big. We've talked about this before, Cole. I'm a real big, uh, like narrative structure guy. Yeah, and if the narrative structure isn't working and for me, it's really hard for me to look I'm past it. Sometimes, not. yes, I'm yeah. a vibes. I'm a vibes guy. I'm a vibes <laughs> and acting and and cool shots guy. Um, I have some questions I'm left with. Yeah. Um, I want to talk the pizza guy. Was the pizza guy like a pedophile or something? Why did he kill the pizza guy at the end of the movie? Did he just kill him? Because See, okay, I, that, that him? is my big narrative <laughs> problem with this movie is that the, the guy doesn't make any sense as like an avatar of justice, nor do I think if you want to make the read on the movie that he's just crazy. Um, and and is just justifying it. I don't think the movie sells that either because he kills this pizza guy at the end. His whole thing on the phone is that he like wants to take down like the worst of the world, right? That he wants to like make people confess their sins. But this is the third person he's done this to. Colin Farrell has some mildly shady business dealings <laughs> and cheats on his wife. But uh, he doesn't though. But and, and thinks about cheating his wife. The <laughs> yeah. other two people that he says he has killed are an executive who did major white collar fraud, defrauding like so many people out of their money in a stock market crash, and a fucking child pornographer. Mm-hmm. One of these things is not like the other, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like I don't, I don't think that tracks. And I hadn't even thought about the pizza boy, Connor. But you're right. Like, what this guy fucking do? Yeah, he must have done something, right? <laughs> yeah, that's what he's given. He's giving morality. Stu shit about uh, the, not being nice to the pizza guy, but obviously the pizza guy didn't deserve being nice to. Um, my second question is, why did Stu tell him at the end that the police were coming for him? He's like, they're coming for you right now. They're going to kill you. I know. The guy's so... still looking at Kelly with the gun. <laughs> yeah. Hollywood movie. Yeah. Um, the, <laughs> I, the, one, the one that I think the biggest one is like, so did he, was the plan from the beginning to to stage this as a public shooting to find somebody yes. to shoot to make the police think that Stu shot that person because he has the gun stashed That's in the the other phone. thing that doesn't make sense yeah the the levels of like predetermination um this is actually something i wanted to bring up uh cuz i do think this movie's great this movie also has a great premise and I'm always down for people ripping this movie off. I wanted um, to talk about those ripoffs too. Uh, are we talking about the same movie here? Yes. I've, Is the major are we bringing up picture... a friend of the show? Uh, no, I'm talking about. Uh, is Eugenia Mira a friend of the show? Because I'm talking about Grand Piano. I was gonna, yeah, Grand oh. Piano. Yeah, okay, Jake. If he's Connor, have you seen Grand Piano? I have not. Grand Piano is from about 10 years ago. It is a total phone booth ripoff. Um, as much Absolutely. as I like phone booth, it is a better movie than phone booth because I think it squares a lot of those narrative circles we're confused by. It's a much cleaner. It's a much cleaner movie. Thing, yeah. It is It is phone booth set in a classical music concert where there's a sniper. Holding oh, that's the one with Elijah Wood. Right? Elijah Wood yeah. hostage mid concert. And tell And it's Cusack on the other end of Elijah. Cusack's way really more dynamic good. Yeah, he's and excited. extremely good. Is it? Um, how is it mixed? How's the phone call mixed? Perfectly. Much better. Way better. It, than exactly like you'd yeah. want it to be. Well, it's not a phone call. It's an earpiece. 
this um, is a this is a like change i would make instantly is you're you're never part of why you're never scared of this caller is because of how clear he's coming through and i think the most terrifying like one of the most terrifying things in any movie is in um zodiac when yes. the killer oh, on the phone with uh, brian cox and just that gravelyness of the yes connection makes it terrifying and it and it alienates it from everything from anything that's interpersonal between human and human um i think that's just an easy fix for this one yeah mm-hmm. you know? it's not a good news um another movie i thought of watching this was um i don't know if you guys have seen this the rehead kinamura film downrange from a couple years ago yes that's a is, really good movie which is much more of a like when is this guy gonna fucking shoot movie than a taunter on the other end of the line it's a purest movie. of purest yeah. cat and mouse movies but then, yeah this this one might be a stretch but watching it i feel like the real legacy of phone booth is the jean call it sarah movies non-stop in the commuter which don't have mm. the sniper angle but are the exact same thing of like this random guy is being manipulated by an off-screen psycho to like appear to be a terrorist or a killer basically and they're like one man stuck in a location has to solve the thing those are obviously more dynamic and less of like a performance piece but you do see the like the influence of this movie like people taking it's not even just like someone taking the quote-unquote best aspect of this movie and purifying it down all those movies are taking one aspect of this movie the 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 guy on the other line taunting the tension of when's the gunfire gonna come down the sort of like innocent man framed thing and like making that a movie all on its own and that's so exciting and i think you can that is to this movie's credit that so many people i think watch it and want to make a movie like it even if they're even if you want to argue they're improving it you know, we, I think that's cool as hell. You mentioned Tony Scott. Do we think that Pelham One Two Three remake is building on the coattails? To, how, to when's the last time you've seen degree. it? Uh, a year ago, because I was on another podcast talking about it. <laughs> I th- this movie is very good. It is no the taking of Pelham One Two Three. 2009 directed by Tony Scott. No, just the um, dynamic that they the, capture. In, the dynamic yeah. is there. I think that movie is so interesting in that dynamic in a way that this movie isn't interested in. Um, this movie doesn't True. care about kind of the tete-a-tete to the same way or the meta-textual tete-a-tete of the, 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 the two movie stars in their place in our cultural imaginations, which is what I think the Tony Scott movie is most concerned with. I could literally talk for hours. I would argue that that's movie. what Tony Scott is most concerned with. Well, that's what I think Tony Scott Absolutely. is most concerned with. Uh, I think that movie is a masterpiece. Um, and I think that movie takes a lot visually from this movie. Uh, as yeah. does Domino, as does Unstoppable, um, like I was discussing earlier. What I thought you were going to bring up for a minute there, have you ever heard of the film Liberty Stands Still, Cole? It's no. another 2002 film. Yet it oh, yes. I, I, I found this out. I, I yeah. found this out. I wanted to bring it up. It's essentially the same premise, except it's Linda Fiorentino and Wesley Snipes, and she's trapped in a food cart. Linda. Oh, wow. Linda. Yeah. Linda. <laughs> Friend of the show, this, Linda Fiorentino. podcast is quietly... Uh, marking the like death of Linda Fiorentino's career. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, a little bit, I guess. 
It's not like we bring it up every week. We, no, should we do a Linda Fiorentino check-in every time we hit a new year? No, just see what's no going on? because uh, since recording the Ordinary Decent Criminal episode and this one, I have found out that Linda Fiorentino could get a little litigious if you say some things about her. Ooh, okay. Did not find that out firsthand, but I did some digging on her because I was, I was curious about the whole, like, why she... Uh, we'll refer to her as Lisa Valentino for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> I was just curious about the wiser career falling apart thing. And I have heard some people say that she like can maybe start threatening you with lawyers. If you talk too much about certain things, people have said about her professional conduct. Um, yeah. That's all I have to say about Linda Fiorentino. Uh, no, I, I did blow my mind that there's like a junkie Wesley Snipes, Linda Fiorentino movie that basically has the same premise. Same year. Which, you know what? Not going to lie. This script was floating around Hollywood for like 15 years. Yeah, I mean. What you going to do? I'm sure it has something I, to do with that. I, I'm I sure it's the same way the the um, uh, the Ashton Kutcher and Natalie Portman. And I, I can't remember yeah. the names. Of those uh, names. It's the same thing happened with, that, with those I films, was actually yeah. thinking, um, do you guys know Missing in Action, the Chuck Norris movie? Oh, yes. The, yeah, the like yeah, first yeah. big Chuck Norris movie. Mm. That movie is a straight up knockoff of Rambo 2. Yep. But it yep. comes out a year before Rambo 2 because the production of Rambo 2 is so delayed and so slow. And it takes them so long to get off the ground. <laughs> There's so many that, examples that it's everyone so knows what Rambo 2 is going to be about. And Golden and Globus, those great legends of exploitation film, are basically like, let's just fucking do it before they can with this with this karate champion. Was Armageddon and Deep Impact a similar story where that script that was popping year? That, that one I have to also think is, um, let me get comic book nerdy for a second here. Do you guys know the characters Man-Thing and Swamp-Thing? Yeah. Yeah. Jake? I know so, Swamp-Thing, yeah, yeah. yeah. Marvel and DC, respectively, have Man-Thing and Swamp-Thing, both of whom are kind of C-list characters, which are a guy like falls into a swamp and is reborn as like a creature of like mud and fungus and swamp goo, right? Those characters debut within a month of each other in the comics. And it's just that the creators of each respective character were roommates. Neither one of them has accused the other one of ripping them off. They have just both acknowledged that they were like passing the same idea around and it seemed like such a fringe thing that they didn't think the other one would do something with it. I have to think that's what the deep impact thing is. The deep impact Armageddon thing. Right. Or the Olympus has fallen. Yeah. White House down. White House down. And Volcano. Yeah. Dante's Peak and Volcano. Um, Sorry. Yeah. That's just, you know, professional screenwriters. Not that many of them. They all hang out together. I think the know? difference is what um man, what are they what are they called? The friends with benefits one. Friends with no benefits strings attached. And no strings, strings attached. I think one of those is good. One of those, well, one of <laughs> if they both I don't know. I forget which one is the end result, but one of them started as a blacklist screenplay. Yes. And I think that's why I suspect that the other one was kind of greenlit based off of a screenplay that was already passed around in the first place. Like yeah, I think that's got to be. Yeah. That was also in the air in that time. I can't remember which one is which. The one of them that is Ashton Kutcher and Natalie Portman, which that's I believe- no strings attached. The Ivan yes. Brightman one? Ivan yeah. Brightman one. That movie's actually really good. The it's other good. one sucks. Friends with Benefits, which is Justin and Mila Kunis, sucks. 
Ivan Reitman, a weird director and that his best work is quietly at the end of his career. Um, because as we, Funny, I, I as just we saw have that. said yeah. so many times on this podcast, Draft Day is probably the greatest American movie ever made. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I watched that for the first time like four days ago. Congratulations. And I, I don't remember a thing about it. It's a perfect movie. I could probably go line for line right now with draft day i've seen it so many times yeah i was gonna bring up the split screen in that movie connor hates draft day i don't hate draft day i don't hate draft day you say i do i don't i just don't think it i it's draft day is the same to me as like glory road have you ever seen that the josh lucas basketball movie i saw all these movies i've seen all these movies (laughs) Um, the rookie with Dennis Quaid, or he's the I've pitcher. Seen, seen the yeah, the, the draft day is like in that ballpark for me, which I, I don't enjoy. Remember just... Dennis Quaid saying, Say it with me, you pancake eating motherfucker. <laughs> in motherfucker. The rookie. <laughs> um, I remember that Pat Healy is in the rookie, like quietly stealing the movie. Pat Healy's low key really great Pat in that Healy's one scene, fucking insane in draft day. It's the same year. It's a year after Cheap Thrills. So that's like the height of his like weird horror movie character after run. And then he just pops <laughs> up and draft it. Forrest Whitaker is in this movie. Fun yeah. Move. Pretty good. He's good. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think he's like doing as much as Colin is. Like he's kind of just like. He doesn't need to. Showing up. Yeah, he doesn't need to. And I think what you were saying, Jake, earlier about a lot of the nonverbal stuff he's doing, because so much of this movie is them communicating not with their words as Colin's trying to get him to figure out what the situation is. Two of the best face in Hollywood. A a wonderful face. Like Forrest Whitaker is a wonderful face. You know, my thing about Forrest Whitaker is, do I think he's like one of my favorite actors? Not, not really. But he hasn't a, really been. He's reliable shot to do. He has an Academy stuff. Award. Okay, he does. But I that oh, we all remember his the last performance is good. It's I, that's a I very remember issue issued yeah. riddled film. I will always remember the last King of Scotland just because <laughs> um, that best actor lineup is like I think maybe the only time in history, or if not the only time, one of the only times. Um, in which none of the movies were Best Picture nominees. Uh, oh, yes. Which yeah, happens yeah. fairly regularly with Best Actress uh, for reasons that you can kind of extrapolate, reasonably Hollywood <laughs> sexism, but never happens with Best Actor. And that's the one year where it happened. That's He's the year with like Leo. He's better though. Leo and Blood Diamond, Diamond right? right? And Leo and Blood yeah. Diamond, Whitaker winning. Gosling in Half Nelson, which is like a quietly incredible performance. That's an amazing, yeah. That's um, my winner of those. That's my winner. Uh, Will Smith in Pursuit of Happiness, a movie I've never seen. And I cannot remember who the fifth one is, but it's not anyone in a Best Picture nominee that year. I think I take Leo that year. I like in Blood I, Diamond. I like what he does in Blood Diamond. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's in the Departed that same year. That's, like, that's an weird performance. Oh, the it is. It is. The Departed diamonds. is, but out of yeah. that lineup, I think I would, I would take him. That's just I'm throwing no. that shot out there in the dark. No. I haven't thought very heavily about it. Um, oh, Peter O'Toole and Venus, a movie that is not real and no one has. <laughs> is Whitaker better in The Butler, which is his yes. Like, yes. only other yes. shot where he could have won yes. an Academy Award, even though he didn't yes. get nominated for it? Yeah. Well, first of all, he's not the lead of the last game of Scotland. It is category fraud. 
That is true. I'm sorry. That is true. It is straight yeah. up. It's McAvoy, Kingsley. right? He's in it's the McAvoy. Anthony Hopkins area yeah. in Last King of yeah. Scotland. He's oh, in wow. no way is he the lead of Last King of Scotland. It's a good. Perf- I mean, I haven't seen that movie since it came out. I didn't really like it. Idi Amin obviously is going to invite hamminess from any actor because that guy was so strange as a, of a person. Um, he's so good in the Butler man. <laughs> I'm sorry. He is. I mean, and he was That's never going to get nominated for Ghost Dog. You know, Ghost that Dog was never going to okay But he was never going to get nominated. For no something. way. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. The one performance of his that I truly love, like capital L love, and I don't think he gets enough credit for this. He's great in the crime game. Yes, oh, he yeah, is. He's obviously, he dies very early in the crime game. Um, but I think that is a very beautiful performance that has to lay a lot of the groundwork for what else is going to be happening in the second half of that movie. And I think if that performance doesn't click, you know, Jay Davidson is obviously an extraordinary in the crime game. So Stephen Ray, but I think a lot of that movie is quietly resting on Whitaker. I agree with um, you. I think I have, what made it not, I think what made it not stand out in any terms of like an awards campaign or acknowledgement or anything like that is just because jordan directs a, it very yeah. still there's already and, a supporting actor mm. contender in that movie you <laughs> know is. it's there it is, is. it is yeah. like davidson they were never they were never trying to be cute and trying to run davidson as a woman as for supporting actress mm. um you guys seen species i have that's what <laughs> whitaker and species is an insane performance <laughs> have you seen species jake no, 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 no. Do you know? Do you know the but premises I, of species? I know the yeah. I know the plot. And it, yeah. Do you know what? It what, sounds like my shit. It's not very good. Do you know who he's playing? <laughs> you should watch it though. You should watch it. I recommend species to anybody that might so be they, interested in the plot they, in the right. synopsis. Yeah. They've put together. <laughs> they've put together a team to track down this alien, and it's like a couple scientists who are like understand alien shit some mercenaries who could do the like actual hunting and then he plays like the world's most profound empath (laughs) and his whole performance is he just like stops and he's like i feel sadness coming from chicago which must (laughs) he's basically playing it like a psychic and it's right, but, but yeah. the bit is that he's like a very like quiet, soft-spoken, beanie-wearing empath who just feels so hard that he knows where this it's such a weird performance. <laughs> you know, I, I quietly does Forrest re- Whitaker meet Katie Holmes making phone booth. Do they know each other? Forrest Whitaker directed the film oh, First Daughter. This is true. Starring Katie Holmes. Must have been, yeah. Uh, they don't really have any in... scenes together, though, do they? No. Well, they're there. No, she, like, she's, they're she's in the end. same place. Oh, right. At right, the end right. of the movie. What yeah. were you going to say, Jake? And then I want to touch on a few more Forrest Whitaker performances. <laughs> same as you. I was going to yeah. say, speaking of thrillers, in 02, he was in Panic Room at the same time. And I he's think he's great. Quietly, the yeah. best performance in that movie. Uh, he's great in that. I just wanted to say in more. You don't think years, Jared Leto is the best? Jared Leto. Uh, no, no, sorry, sorry. <laughs> sorry I to also, say. I also got to call bullshit. The best performance in Panic Room is Dwight Yoakam. Oh, easy, easy. Um, not Jared Leto. No, I'm alone. Yeah, no, no, fucking. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, he's. I do think he's really good in the first Black Panther. 
It's obviously a oh, very yeah. small role. He is. But he's, very he's, good, yeah. he's like outside of Michael B. Jordan. He And I don't particularly care for Angela Bassett in Black Panther 2. Uh, but I do, do think the thing Angela, for you? She does not do the thing for me. Oh. I, I think Angela Bassett is wonderful in Black Panther 1. Uh, maybe because less is asked of her, so she can kind of <laughs> just inhabit the character more. Um, another great recent uh, Force Whitaker performance. Uh, you guys know he's in Sorry to Bother You? Oh, he's the voice. Oh, yeah. He's the, the he's, um, uh, he's the mocap. What, he's what are the they mocap called? character? He's, yeah. the, he's the horse person. He's the equestrian. They have a name at the yeah. end of the movie. <laughs> Equest, uh, Equisapiens. They're Equisapiens. Yeah. Um, and then also, I think he's really bad in both Arrival and Star Wars. He's no, I, I think he's really good in Arrival. Actually, uh, Arrival sucks. We bus. are complete. We are complete opposite ends of the spectrum on Arrival. We're all the men in Arrival are bad. other sides of the coin. All the men in Arrival. No, um, one. There's one good male performance in Arrival, and I am blanking on his name. So let me just pull it up. The Chinese Ooh. guy. Are you going to say? Yes. Oh yeah, 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 yes. Zima. No, I think Zima. he's good. I think incredible good. Chinese Chinese American character actor Zima in the one scene at the end of Arrival is great. I don't think I don't think uh, Renner's given no Renner's the opportunity to do Renner is much with it. Arrival is glad. bad contact. Arrival is contact for people who don't have a. Soul. It's mid tier contact. It's mid tier contact. It's not bad. I think Arrival is a fantastic. Speeding, I, I think Amy Adams evil. is great. In that. She's fine. She's 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 no Jody, but she's she's, she's no good. Jody. I mean, that's my big <laughs> look. Case it has no Amy. horny priests. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> that's that's maybe my big case for like, does Amy Adams really have the goods? Is, is Arrival? That like, is Arrival because Jody has the goods. And Amy Adams They're is not, not the uh, same movie, dude. They are the same <laughs> They're movie. They're different movies. They're the same fucking They're not. movie. <laughs> I think you're dampened by the what fact that... What is about linguistics? <laughs> Nocturnal Animals... About the need to send a poet. Go, Nocturnal right. Animals came out like so close to this. So, she's like, really good in Nocturnal Animals. I think... I think you're one camper or the other, and I think she's not great yeah. in Nocturnal Animals. Uh, Nocturnal Animals is like quietly a good movie. <sighs> I, re- I refuse to acknowledge that movie it's exists an anymore. Evil I haven't movie. thought about that movie it's in a, a long time. Yeah. I think about that. A, My favorite is just that she Isla Fisher plays fictional <laughs> Amy Adams, right? Yeah. Yeah. Let's bounce back to Katie Holmes for a second. You know what Amy Adams is great in? What? Season the fighter. two, episode something of the office. A fighter. Oh, she's purse girl. Yeah, she's yeah. really good. Yeah, no, she's good in she's good in um the office but catch no she's great you, catch me if you yeah can. she's great catch me if you can no she's she's great in the fighter uh all right we'll do amy great... adams we'll do amy adams like three <laughs> the amy adams pod soon. two seasons yeah. from now maybe yeah. it's just Nothing. has she worked with colin i don't think so. will they overlap at one well point? i don't she think she so. hasn't that'd be interesting katie holmes i want to talk about katie holmes for a second because oh, katie yes, holmes yes, is also yes. this movie she plays his not mistress colin's not mistress <laughs> Again, think, again, his client. It's so stupid. He is his client. <laughs> yeah, this client. This is the tangent. This is like the doom spiral. I went down watching this movie and thinking about Katie Holmes. Do you think Paul Farrell think... introduced her? To <laughs> no. Is that what you're about to say? No. That would be spectacular. They've made no. that before that. I think. No. Uh, a, a fucking market test. <laughs> and I am cutting that out. But they um, use Colin Farrell as the middleman. <laughs> right, uh, right. 
I think the implication of this character dynamic is that Katie Holmes is some young, impressionable girl, maybe getting taken advantage of as a sleazy guy with power, right? Yeah. Yes. And I, think I don't think that's imp- implied necessarily. I think that's okay. What is okay. I guess yeah. I think the implication is that she's supposed to be much younger than Stu. Mm. This is the spiral I went down. Well, I okay. I I I have similar. I, there's another thing I want to go on to. I think yeah, we're but, I think we're entering the same spiral. But I'm interested yeah. in this idea of Katie Holmes because Katie Holmes is in fact, and I'm just double checking this. Two years younger than Colin Farrell. The age gap between Colin Farrell and Rada Mitchell in this movie, who plays his wife, is greater than the age gap between Katie Holmes and and Colin. And I kind of started thinking about this. When she gets recast in the Batman movies, I think I remember part of the reason they wanted to recast her is because she felt too young to play Mm -hmm. that role. She is a year younger than Maggie Gyllenhaal, right? What is it about Katie Holmes that reads so infantile Mm. on screen? Because she plays a teenager the year after this in First Daughter. She's got dimples. Is it dimples? Is it the baby voice? It's the voice, first and foremost. I was wondering if it was that she was a child star. I think and a she lot comes of, in with Dawson's, yeah. but Vanderbeek and Williams don't get tagged with the same like eternally childish. Mm-hmm. And here she is with actors her age, and she's clearly playing younger than they are, and that really defines, I think, her entire career. I think there's a lot that plays into the Batman Begins recasting, yeah. other than her. Yeah, being she's younger. better yeah. than Jill and Hall is. <laughs> Just gonna put that out there. It's the character is so much better written in the second movie than it the is character is better movie. written. But yeah. Maggie Gyllenhaal, an actress I love, I love Maggie Gyllenhaal. I'm not saying that Katie Holmes is good in Batman Begins. She's not. But Maggie Gyllenhaal is visibly being held at gunpoint to act in <laughs> in the Dark Knight. She does that is like the most phoned in performance anyone's ever. Mm. It, I think it kind of works. If we're gonna it's talk about it, I bad. think it works for this reason. She's so over the <laughs> the BS of what's going on. Um, Harvey, the bo- I the just bat- wanted to the- tell you Harvey. that it's okay that I'm. Oh, it's so bad. I think it's more Nola's that neglect for the great. character overall, because she's Maybe. like she's like extremely good in other movies around that time, and I think it's just yeah. I think she's playing like second fiddle to all the men in that movie. Just so it's another just apparently it's, it's the way the character is written. It's you have to bring a lot um, of your own self to it, I think. And it's sure it's not it's not that Maggie Gyllenhaal is not a good enough actress to do it. I just don't think that I think they needed to to experiment with casting other people before they landed on somebody specific. Take sure. it over. Do you think that uh, obviously Schumacher made two Batman movies? Do you think the caller is influenced (laughs) in any way by the Batman characters, by Batman villains? Ooh, Uh, no, because Batman villains are more ostentatious. It is weird. He he says a lot of things that get repeated in the Dark Knight. Like, does he? He makes mention of 
he he made like I I think what I find interesting is like he's doing theatrics about having a bad childhood and he's like ah that's not real I had a great childhood he's oh, doing okay, yeah, about, oh yeah yeah, yeah serving yeah. in Vietnam okay he's doing theatrics about um being a failed actor which is like the killing joke um if you or failed entertainer um and then I just think there's things that he say about the way society treats soldiers as opposed to people in America um and the way that like the media covers public violence and I couldn't help but think about I just don't know I don't know if Nolan and Ledger maybe saw this and pulled from it a little bit as they were attacking Mm -hmm. how to treat the Joker in their film um it's clearly not a one-to-one I think what I like and probably what I like more about the Sutherland performance than what you guys like is that uh he pulls off this brand of like a fallible genius criminal which right. I, which is usually it's one or the other it's the kind of bumbling criminal or the psychopathic criminal who can easily get manipulated because of emotion or the genius criminal like spacey and seven the john doe character who is eternally in control of what's happening um i think what sutherland pulls off in this is that you believe that this guy isn't necessarily in control of what he's doing at any given time, um, which makes it a little bit scarier because you're like, this guy can go off to start shooting people if he wants. Um, there's verisimilitude to what he's doing uh, with the voice acting. And again, I, yes. I think I think the, the mixing betrays it because yeah. if you have oh, yeah. the kind of voice of God sound mixing, that doesn't match what he is doing performance-wise. Like he's playing a person. He's not playing this kind of ethereal figure that's coming down from the heavens to make a judgment of somebody on earth. He he genuinely seems to be playing a real person who is experiencing different satisfactions or frustrations in the given moment, which I don't think you see a lot from movie criminals of this type. Does that make sense? They yeah, usually seem yeah. like if you look at again, if you look at Spacey in seven, he's so alienated from the present moment. He he has no he has no skin in the game. He has no he's he's not invested in anything that's going on. Um, he's he's acting out what he's already put into motion. Like he's already determined his fate and he's just going through the step by step of getting from point A to point B. And that that is not what Sutherland is. Mm-hmm replicating here spacey's like he's like a detached he's like doing a detached art installation of like the seven deadly sins versus (laughs) and that i don't want to give kevin spacey any more credit than he deserves but he uh you can give it to fincher you could get sure sure um buddy we had to do a whole episode of the kevin spacey movie okay (laughs) you can say whatever you want we've it's just the first the the character in that (laughs) film is the first one that comes to mind without like getting into the joker talk um, yeah, which I think the, is the one that everybody jumps yeah, because to. it's the it's the self righteousness of it all of it all, you know. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, the the sense that I'm I'm somehow like aiding societal change, which is not a track I think this movie necessarily demands. <laughs> but at the same time, I think I think what you're saying for the humanization, like just just the fact that he he finds it so funny, is such an interesting. <laughs> It's not even like a Joker thing. It's it's a very human choice the keepers make. I read another quote. I love yeah. what he, he's asking. He's he's demanding that Stu ask. Uh, um, I don't know if Forrest Whitaker's character's name, but he's asking Forrest Whitaker if he masturbates. Yeah, yeah. His wife. <laughs> and Stu just goes, 
So do you whack off now? <laughs> like leans out the window. And goes, Ask so him you if he masturbates. Now? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's that's me. that's more of Joker energy that you're referring to. That I I feel to like super super horny R rated. Well, he Joker says beard. like he says, uh, wait till it goes national. ABC, CBS, CNN, UPN. You're gonna have the whole alphabet. Like that's a comic book <laughs> line, you know. He's he's pointing the camera at Pam at the Katie Holmes character, and he goes, "I think she needs a new headshot." That's a great. That's pun. pretty good. Yeah, that's, that's a Batman good. and Robin level pun. It is. It's and really he great. says, um, when he's talking about Vietnam, what was make what really I was like, okay, this is kind of what the Joker's talking about in The Dark Knight when he's talking about soldiers yeah. blowing up in Afghanistan. He says, well, pictures can't do it, Stu. You can't imagine the fear, the stench, pigs eating napalm charred bodies, children leaving grenades in your boots when he's talking about serving in Vietnam. And I just like his glee where he's like, I have to be over 50 yeah. if I fought in Vietnam. Stu, come on. It's like, we have no frame of reference yeah. for how old you are either way, too. Which yeah, is the funniest part. I just it. love the moments where he's like, Stu, you idiot. <laughs> Well, Ryan Mitchell does near the end of the movie be like, he sounded like a man in his 30s, <laughs> which I do think is a very funny line. Yeah. Because Ryan Cooper Mitchell, is, who's Australian, uh, I wish. Uh, bad in this movie. She's bad, but the accent's better. <laughs> sure. That's, it's a real dog shit performance. That's all I want to I'm say. Sorry. This is the biggest um, issue I have with the film is her character. Because yeah. I here's here's my here's my bid to change it. Here's my Connor's writer's workshop how to fix this film immediately yeah. is make uh make Kelly Shepard trashy. Make her also from a struggling yes. part of the Bronx. And make make Stu's interest in Pam more an interest in moving up in the world, not necessarily mm. a lustful interest in like a younger girl that he can take advantage of and i and yes. have them consummate the the affair and then you truly have a moment then at the end of the film where he has to come to terms with hurting people because of his own desire and things of that nature but as it is i i just you watch this and because of how sleazy Farrell's trying to play stew you're kind of like left with this question of where did he meet this woman because she's not in the entertainment industry and he seemingly spends all his time around Times Square and they live on West 51st Street so he's not really going to other parts of the city unless he's going for some kind of PR event um and why would she <laughs> fall for him when she seems so high class and well put together in comparison to to where they are and and what's going on mm -hmm. um I think that's an immediate fix and it makes yeah. the movie stronger in the long run. Yeah, it's just, she's just so saintly. It's just so dis uninteresting, right? So uninteresting. And she yeah. seemingly owns like an antique shop. Is on like is, in Columbus Circle. <laughs> is Rada Mitchell a good actress? Hmm. Um, what else has she been in? So I will I will preface this little tangent by saying I have never seen the Lisa Cholodenko film High Art. Which was kind of her breakthrough. That's her breakthrough, and yeah. People really liked that movie. She is kind of like inoffensive whatever in Man on Fire and Pitch Black. Like, yeah. she's not really a detriment to those movies. You're not really coming out of there really excited about them. 
Those are thankless roles yeah. to begin with, though. The movies of hers that I have seen, really I have bad. not seen in a very long yeah. time. She's really bad in this. She's really bad in Finding Neverland. Uh, she's disastrously <laughs> bad in Woody Allen's Melinda and Melinda, which is a movie built around her, right? The the only performance of her, she's bad in Olympus Has Fallen. Uh, I don't even remember her being in London Has Fallen, but internet says she's in London Has Fallen. Uh, maybe only, her voice, maybe you hear her voice at some point. Only, sure, this, sure. Is, this is yeah. my take on why I think she's bad. The only performance of her I ever, of hers I remember like really sticking with me. You guys seen the Silent Hill movie? Yeah. <laughs> uh, a great movie. That's a, that, Yeah, it's a great. She's like good in that but that movie like weaponizes how like boring she is you know like that's such an empty character because she's just literally like an avatar who needs to move through these hellscapes that the kind of vanity of her performance becomes an asset to the movie so i can't really say that she's good in it right more than christoph gans is using her well. christoph gans is making a sequel to silent hill by the way and i'm so fucking excited because uh, that movie's a masterpiece. A direct sequel to the one from like 2005? Yes. So they're red-cotting right. Silent Hill Revelations? They're not acknowledging Silent Hill Revelations as far as I know. The uh, right, correct choice. It's yeah. called Return to Silent Hill. It sounds like they're saying it's an adaptation of Silent Hill 2, which is probably bullshit. I've never played the Silent Hill games, but like my understanding is that the first one is just pulling willy nilly from all of them anyway. It's yeah, it's a yeah, it's vignette kind of like throughout the games. And uh, saying we're making something based on Silent Hill 2 just sounds like the sort of thing you say to get nerds with YouTube shows to like boost your movie because everyone likes that one. Uh, she's really bad in this and it's a badly written character, but you know what? So is the Whitaker performance. That guy's <laughs> nothing on the page. And Whitaker can make it work. Even Holmes makes it work better than Mitchell does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then again, this is the Colin show. It doesn't really hurt the movie that she's not really good. Let me uh, let me hit you with some more fun facts from Wikipedia that may or may not be correct because I did not. Uh... Yeah verify them uh it was originally offered and accepted by jim carrey who dropped out i know about that don't i don't know this for certain i think that that is more that the studio wanted a bigger name um and threw out jim carrey uh, they they consider it could be accurate it, just because he's worked with schumacher before and he's about to work with schumacher True. has he worked with like schumacher before yeah, I love the Batman. number. Oh, fucking Batman! Yeah, fuck. Um, it, from interviews, it really seems like Schumacher was really intent on it always being Colin, and that he was always going to put up a fight for Colin. In the interview I watched with uh, Daniel Orlandi, yeah. the costume designer, he he mentions that uh, an original actor had dropped out, and um, Schumacher was very happy because Schumacher wanted Colin the whole time this, and he was able yeah. to get Colin after the initial guy. This movie would have sucked so bad if it was Jim Carrey. I'm sorry. Yes. It would have made even less sense. Yeah. Jim Carrey <laughs> is not a very good actor. I'm sorry. Um, he can't play a real person. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wasn't um, Wahlberg and Cage oh up for this God. role as well? Wahlberg. Okay. So here, here's the other people that the, yeah. that, 
the script had interest. They had yeah. interest in the script, well, not the script necessarily was when Schumacher was. A, yeah. yeah. So not necessarily when Schumacher was attached to it, but these are other actors who wanted to make the film. Tom Cruise, Will Smith, Mel Gibson, Robin Williams, Anthony Hopkins, and Nicolas Cage. Yeah. I, Hopkins. Was Hopkins, Hopkins. did he oh. want to be in the phone booth or did he want to be uh, on the phone? That's I want why. him in the phone booth. I know, so do I. <laughs> Uh, I want Robin know, Williams in the phone booth. That's a <laughs> can you imagine sight, this? Yeah. Can you imagine this like full vaudeville with Robin Williams in the phone booth? And it's a comedy. You, no, <laughs> it's not. Do you know the Michael Bay story about this? Yeah. So I was about to read that. Yeah. Next. That's the so, best quote ever. It's so um, good. I've heard like Mel, so Mel Gibson good. had interest in it as an actor. He also had interest in directing it. Uh, yeah. It got past the Steven Spielberg. It got past the Hughes brothers uh, and Michael Bay was very interested in it and had meetings, but apparently his first question was, okay, so how do we get this thing out of the damn telephone booth? And then he was immediately removed from consideration. Which is, <laughs> I, I, I have two things to say about that. One, cool. That's a very <laughs> cool thing That's for Michael Bay to amazing. do. Two, it is very interesting that 20 years later, Michael Bay has been has, has moved on to the fact that we're like, no, let's keep the entire movie in the ambulance. Yeah, he know? made his phone booth. Yeah, he did make his last phone year. booth. He just figured out a way to make a, a, a single location movie be the most fucking high octane thing <laughs> of all time. Man. Add drones. It was, it Add was, drones to the phone booth. It was never yeah. going to happen. Ever. No. But ambulance not getting a best cinematography nomination. Travesty. Bullshit. Just because that movie... I, I truly believe in like 20 years that movie is going to be looked at as like a game changer for drone photography. Um, yeah, that be. movie I mean, is especially going when you're comparing have, it to the gray man. Yeah. That movie yeah. is going yeah. to, yeah. to have a legacy in terms of its aesthetic that 100%. none of the other, especially because this is a stretch of fucking dog shit cinematography year. I was going to say the um, year is like, worst than for, for the nominees for the yeah. nominees for the nominees the, the the five for nominees it's like two good ones in there and then fucking all fucking quiet on the fucking western yeah take <laughs> that movie is so fucking bad i'm it like it'd be so funny if it won best picture it's like third in line at this point right yeah in, in terms of pro do we want to let's get into this because i wanted to, to touch on this this is the last episode we're recording before the Oscars. Mm-hmm. Now, I have said on this podcast, and I have said on Jake's podcast, uh, that I think Colin Farrell is winning Best Actor at the Oscars. I want to get a heat check on that. How are we feeling about Colin Farrell's chances? Again, I'm not caught up like I would be, but yeah. from what it feels like to me, it feels like it's going um, towards Brendan Fraser or... I can't yeah. pronounce his name off the top of my head because I can't get the letters. Austin straight. Butler? No, do the the guy from uh, everywhere. He's he supporting. He no, no, oh, he's, he's in support. Oh, yeah, no, no, he's got it. Yeah. Ki Kwan. Yeah. He Ki He's the one. Ki Ki He's the one acting lock that I have. He's the one lock. Yeah. Does it start with the K or does it start the H? Because I can't figure it out. It's Ki Ki Kwan. Ki Ki Kwan. Thank you. Ki Ki Kwan. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But he's in supporting. He's in supporting. Yeah. No. Okay. That is Fraser. I. I feel like it's more likely Farrell than Butler, but it oh, could I think I think Butler Butler's is, has it. I think Butler Butler's has, it. has it this yeah. year. I think the fact Probably that Colin very hard the fact that Colin lost the the BAFTA and the SAG 
um, and only won the globe when he was in a different yeah. category from Fraser and Butler. Mm-hmm. It's it's I'm sorry. I think it's over. I think so. And I also don't think Vance is winning best. Picture. Do you think it's Another possible that Fraser yeah. and Butler split the vote, though? And they just uh, goes, yeah, yeah. maybe, but I wouldn't. I honestly think there's that's more likely to happen to best actress. I, I'm okay 100%. with him not winning. For- Andrea Rossborough winning best actress is like yeah, maybe a possibility. And it would be the funniest thing to happen in Oscar night. I've thought about this a ton and I'm I'm okay with him not winning for Banshees because I think he has something he's got he's, he's yeah. 46 right now. If he he's loses, just about to hit that career where yeah. he's just about to hit that point of his career where he plays like mm. the older institutional figure who has to push up against uh some kind of like bureaucratic nightmare and that's what people and he's he's gonna be walking into it with the fucking he lost for banshee's heat behind him that Mm -hmm. is exactly Exactly. where i'm at too though the only thing he has on the docket is a todd solens film so we'll have to see i know i'm sure there's more i'm I'm sure there's more so excited for the todd solens rachel vice edited Mm -hmm. the colin farrell Mm -hmm. oedipus movie you have no idea because I think uh, I think if you look at um But Butler's winning. I think Butler's got it. If last time I checked IMDB, it was the Solens film and the Penguin series. Yep, that's all that's the all only things over there. Yeah. I'm sure he has more going on. They haven't oh, yeah. started. I gotta get my facts straight. They either filming have Penguin just right started now. filming or they haven't started yet. Penguin? Yeah. They started my filming. Twitter, my Twitter feed is nothing but Pat photos. Let me tell you right now, the they either day. they either just started or yeah. they haven't started no, yet. They started yesterday, I think. Okay. Like that... no, but they have started. I can send you the photos. He is on the streets in the makeup, <laughs> hugging Christine Milan. Milani. Christine but that's Milani. gonna be that's that's yeah. like a that's gonna be a long shoot probably yeah no i it's do a think full whatever series, he does right? next, yeah. yeah it's just a, it's probably going to be seven to ten episodes and they're each going to be an hour long you know if, if he loses to fraser i'm gonna be like fucking upset if he loses to butler i will like respectfully bow my head because austin butler butler's great extraordinary but has he picked up steam because of the voice is it mainly um, his I think award he lost circuit? Steam. I think he lost. I think he lost because, of... because of the voice, but not enough to really hurt him. Uh, I think it's gained so much recognition that his name is just being brought up in ballots that you wouldn't expect. I like and the Frazier... idea of um. I like the idea of Austin Butler moving forward in his career that you have to cast him as Robert Downey Jr. in Tropic Thunder. Like you have to cast him <laughs> as Elvis as the character that he's going to be playing in whatever upcoming movie. He might be he's he's on. in a biker movie directed by jeff nichols correct and that is that real is that I, a real i think movie? they're shooting it right now i i i i i'm not getting my hopes up until i my ass is in the theater and i'm watching the opening credits can because... i bring your attention to a very strange award that happened around the time of phone yeah. booth for colin farrell so colin farrell won uh british or irish newcomer of the year at the 2003 london film Critics circle Sure. The film he won this award for was Tigerland. Maybe oh. he just gotten over there. You know, I it, might, it might have just, it, I would assume it, it just was released out. in 2000. Maybe not in England. This is the year he's in six films. That, who knows? <laughs> he's winning newcomer of the year. Sure. But, but he is functionally a newcomer of the year. But by, he's winning it for a film that he made by Grammy, before. by Grammy best new artist roles. This is his newcomer year. 
This is so strange. My yeah, Grammy best he would win newcomer for phone booth or for SWAT or for any well, maybe the they were feeling them. feeling themselves. Okay, <laughs> maybe they were being assholes. Um, United Kingdom. Well, I actually don't have a UK. Oh no, it came out in two thousand in the UK. <laughs> Never mind. Tigerland did. Uh, yeah. So I don't. What's, <laughs> I don't what's this award? I'm curious. It's on his Wikipedia. If you go to list in awards, I got it. I got list it. of awards that Colin Farrell has won. I want to see if he won, if he beat anyone, or yeah, no, British oh, newcomer one. of the year for Tigerland. Two years late. You know <laughs> what? Funny. You know what? No, here's here's what I'm gonna say though. Everyone else he's beating is from a 2001 movie. So this is a 2002 award that okay. is reflecting the 2001 season. So the other, who else is up for? Well, the other people that are winning London Critics Circle Awards this year are like Billy Bob Thornton, the man who wasn't there, Ewan and Moulin Rouge, Nicole Kidman and Moulin Rouge and the others, Gosford Park winning picture. Like this is the 2000, Paul Bettany for A Knight's Tale. This is the 2001 awards season. Ah. Uh. Because this is a critics group and critics groups can be a little loosey-goosey with stuff and Tigerland comes out right at the end of 2000 in England and makes no money. Home video, DVD, VHS circling through, you know, in 2001. He's winning this award in 2002 before Phone Booth has come out, probably before Minority Report has come out. Mm. See, this is my Oscar brain, Connor. This is what you don't have. You don't have Oscar brain where you can like put together the pieces. So it, it looks weird on its face. I don't think it's that weird. Now, do I think Paul Bettany winning British Supporting Actor of the Year for A Nice Tale is a little weird? Yeah. Ooh, they gave Gorinda Chada Best British Director. I haven't seen what's cooking, but that's cool. Gorinda Chada is cool. Beg It Like Beckham is a near-perfect movie. Can I go a brief Gorinda Chada tangent? Yes. <laughs> this is how I think of how good we had it pre-COVID in terms of movies. That there was a movie in 2019 that she directed. <laughs> That was just the pitch for this movie is what if a teenager really liked Bruce Springsteen? <laughs> That's all the movie was. And they made it and it came out in theaters and I saw it in theaters. <laughs> we need to get that energy back. That movie's not even good. It's just insane that that was what a movie was about. God, that was the same year as yesterday too. It was another movie I, was- I saw. In theaters, where both pitches made me want to die and cancel movies. Yeah, yesterday's so ki- yesterday's kind of good though. Oh, I haven't seen it. It's good when it comes up in the Boyle series. We'll see. It's good. It's. I it, hate it. I really. It's hate it. really beautiful. Like I really like hate visually, it. <laughs> it's like one of his best looking movies. Oh wow! The script that sucks could be true. So hard. Do you like it's, how it implies that Ed Sheeran is the new Beatles? Yep. <laughs> you don't feel any way about that? I I don't know, man. I think that movie's pro Coldplay, and I'm cool with that. Because Coldplay are good. I don't know what the hell just happened. What happened? My uh cheat sheet just disappeared. Okay. Oh. Um just to get else? us to the, yeah, just to get us to the end of this. Because so I have a game. At the time yes. when at the time when Hearts War came out. I think we were down we were in the red 68.1 oh, yes. million dollars uh, for context jake uh connor is charting 
Uh, only films he's led. Only films he's the for lead for movies mm-hmm. that Colin Farrell is top billed in. Connor is charting whether or not he's collectively lost Hollywood money or not. That's incredible this, because this because film... everything up until Minority Report is a flop. Tigerland yeah, can... lost a lot. Oh, I can recap it for you. Tigerland lost less than his other films yeah. that he led up to. Really, Tigerland Tiger is cost... really cheap. Tigerland cost ten million dollars. It it made. It made one hundred and forty thousand dollars, so it lost. <laughs> it lost nine point eight, nine point nine and a half million dollars, or nine point eight and a half million dollars. Uh, American mm. Outlaws cost thirty five million. It only made thirteen point seven, so it lost twenty one point three million dollars. Then Hearts War cost seventy million dollars, and it only made thirty three point one, so that lost thirty six point nine. And at that point in his career, after Hearts War, he's lost Hollywood sixty eight point one million dollars but this film cost 13 million dollars it made a, a whopping i would say 97.8 million dollars it's what i'm so, talking about that is so, a dream return on investment for a movie of this scale like of truly. course yeah what it's a mm-hmm. like runaway success you know um everybody's happy after this one so yeah. people are getting the profit participation checks it's crazy um colin probably made a decent amount a decent amount off of this net profit not with holding uh costs for marketing and pr and publicity things of that nature is uh mm-hmm. 84.8 million dollars so in total net now he's in the black 16.8 million dollars yeah i mean you've been Not saying bad. like like how many chances are they going to give this guy but it did work after it paid and off, we'll, yeah. we'll look at the recruit and daredevil you know when we cover those i don't have to leave those box office he's figures. not leave daredevil he's a lead of the recruit yeah, I mean, but Daredevil, he's not the one. Yeah, go. Yeah. What's Can I make a prediction for his biggest disparity of budget and loss? What? It's uh, got to be yeah. Alexander. Probably. Ooh, it must imagine. be Alexander. I haven't looked it Connor, up, but I imagine once we get there, it's Connor, definitely. Do we have to do an episode? We have to do Alexander. <laughs> do we have Director's to do his cut appearance on Sesame Street? But in I don't like want to do. <laughs> he's in Scrubs, too. Oh, we're doing that. Yeah. Definitely. Oh, we're doing that. Oh, we're doing that. We, have we may possibly do that. his hot his hot ones. Yeah, that's episode. the one we're actually debating is do we do hot ones? Here's my case for hot ones. I just think it's a good vehicle to discuss the entire talk show junket press cycle that all these people have to go through. You guys have uh, to do his Charlie Rose appearance where Charlie Rose didn't know the name of We're going to talk about it. We're going <laughs> to talk about it. Not a full episode, but we're going to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, that's it more like supple- we haven't really hit a moment where he's he's interviewed for some stuff for this film, but yeah, there's um, a there's a you showed me a TRL clip. Yeah. Where he's he's doing TRL and it's I mean it's he 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 they even acknowledge it he it, during the commercial break he goes off and has a drink and he's like really in a like drunk and kind of and it's so interesting just how much his like comfort in front of the camera and his willingness to like toss off like banter and flirt with the host like starts to wither up as he's getting more and more hammered it's it's not fun to watch and you can kind of see like a discomfort with being this famous like they start grilling him on the britney spears thing and he really doesn't want to talk about it and no one's picking up on that 
And I think that becomes the future of his career. They, they're of much more interested in talking to him about that than they are about. Yeah. Uh, the movie and he doesn't want to talk about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it seems like he doesn't want to talk about it because he doesn't want to talk about her. Like, like I it, think so, it, yeah. it, it scans his like respect for her that he doesn't want to like start dishing gossip about her. Um, but yeah, I think this was a hit and I think the other ones are hits. And I think, you know, this is what we were waiting for as a culture was this guy, let this guy be a movie star. It's not going to last very long. You know, the bombs are going to start coming. Um, he's already starting to swerve when he's promoting this movie. Um, he's already starting to get ready to do A Home at the End of the World, which is a huge, like, like big turning point, I think, for his career. Never seen it, but just knowing what that movie's about. Um but he made it like he made it as a star. He can carry a movie that even if it costs nothing to like it, it opened at number one, didn't it? It did open at number one. That's all you I don't need. Know if baby. It did. I haven't looked you need that. to open at number one. I got it. I got it. I got it. Hold on. Do you want to do uh, your game first or my game first? Well, I want to let me just check the weekend for this movie first. And then, yeah, this opens at number one against what a girl wants a man apart. Had to stay oh, and bring man. it down the house. Woo, 2003. <laughs> what a time to be alive. We'll do the rundown at some point, but you already know them all. Uh, so. I don't think the rundowns come out yet. Um, no, no, no. I mean, the you know how we did the 2002 rundown? Oh, I thought we, you meant yeah. the 2003 The rock movie. film? No. The, the rock film. The <laughs> Is rundown. that a 2003 movie? Yes. That movie's <laughs> great. Uh, That's a fun anything, movie. Do you have anything you want to say about Phone Booth before we... I'm delighted. I'm delighted you guys had enough to say about it as I did because I yeah. thought I've never met anyone else who has once seen the movie and has been as fascinated with Colin's performance in this movie. So. Oh, oh, oh! I almost forgot. I just want to. I, I I told someone I would say this on this episode. Um, I would like to shout out my cousin Johnny, who when I uh told him we were doing this podcast he asked if we were doing an episode on panic room because he forgot that colin is in phone booth and not panic room he got those two <laughs> movies mixed up and he asked me to shout him out so what's up johnny come in the pod um yeah i i just think this is a great little programmer uh we should be making more movies like this 100%. even if the script is a little wonky uh but it, it all I needed was some easy fixes. I think. Easy fixes. And yeah. that's, like I said, that's studio notes. I see them. I don't yeah. care. I truly, that is cost of doing business. Would, would the version of this movie that was a fucking like straight to video movie probably be a little meaner and have a nicer script? Yes. Would it look this good? No. And I think I'd rather take the latter. As much that's as I fair. am an expo- a real exploitation head. Um, I want the Joel Schumacher. I want the Colin Farrell. I want the Libatique. I care about yeah, that more than I, I care about this. the mean. Yeah, I think I prefer this to the like. There's a version of this that is a wannabe Dog Day Afternoon that's mostly yeah. about him in the mm. standoff with the police while he's trapped inside the phone booth, and that could be interesting. But I think I prefer this to what we would have gotten, uh, considering yeah. like the other. B movie schlock that's just being thrown out at the time. Also, plenty of exploitation movies are very moralizing. Uh, they literally invented that. Uh, shouldn't assume. I just saying, Cohen does get, for all that I don't particularly care for Cohen, he can actually get legitimately kind of dark and mean spirited with his shit. 
Uh, yeah, I don't yes. mind. I definitely don't mind yeah. the moralizing. I just think yeah. they could have done a better it's job. It's a little incoherent. Making him more questionable of a protagonist. Yeah. Yeah. So you want to do your game first? You want to do my game first? Um, I'm guessing yours is the is box It's the same one I always do, buddy. <laughs> Let's do mine first. Yeah, go ahead. It'll be, I think, more fun. <laughs> um, okay, so oh, I'm on, I think mine's fun. <laughs> I'm on. I'm on Watch Mojo's um, top Ooh. ten movie phone calls. Ooh. <laughs> and I wonder Canonized. if you want to guess the top six because why not? Seven, one of them is ten? very. Well, you could do all ten if you want. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, Scream has to be in there. Scream is number one. It fucking better be. Do you like it, scary movies? And it, it's the Drew. It's the Drew. It's the KCC yeah. from Scream 1, right? What, what you got? Other famous movie phone calls. is Jake, you can guess too. Um, is Dog Day in there? Dog Day Afternoon? No. No. Uh, Dialing for Murder. So. Yeah, I mean that's that that this movie is kind of pulling from that, right? Yeah. Like well, it definitely. Saying. I I had actually rewatched it really recently too to get ready for Pacino next week, and um, and that's also that's a, a that's lot a of fucking Oscar nominated phone call because yeah. the Chris Sarandon scene. Yeah. Uh, maybe hasn't aged the best, but I do think Chris Sarandon is incredible in that movie. Cool. I'm going to tell you right now. Yeah. One of these is very easy. One of I'm these. also very also stupid. Really, yeah, obvious. Famously <laughs> stupid. It's so obvious. The dial in for murder. No. What? Fuck I don't off. think Watch Mojo goes. Pre, it's Watch like, Mojo, dude. You're yeah. right. It's. I'm telling you guys. Mojo. I'm telling you guys. One of these. If you had, if you hadn't seen, if you don't watch movies, but you're oh, listening to the this ring, podcast, the ring. That that is one of the answers, but it's not the one I'm I'm talking it's about. It's a good. So it's, I mean, I, I don't even think that's that good of a phone call. The but seven that's some watch mojo bullshit. Call. Yeah, it's, is there just, any, it's just two words. Is there anything from the first Matrix in that list? Um, even though no, it's not technically a, a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> no, is cool. there isn't. But that would be a good, a mm. good you know option. What's, you know what's a good move? Again, you have to get inside the mind of Watch Mojo. But, you have to, but, yeah, you have to I assimilate hate. yourself within the Watch Mojo apparatus. Do, do you guys know it's a good movie? I'm gonna pull up IMDb top 250. I think that's uh, the Matrix. <laughs> okay, so nobody makes wow, a phone call in the Shawshank Redemption. Uh, let me go. One, let right? me let me give you some more hints. Okay, um, one of them one of them was uh, mentioned last episode. We have uh, one was mentioned two episodes ago wow one was mentioned this episode okay well shit we talked about two were mentioned this episode actually we talked about so many movies in the american outlaw episode i think three (laughs) of them three of them were mentioned in this episode no not american outlaw american outlaw was three weeks ago oh yeah last week was oh yeah, yeah 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 oh god what other okay? What so one was Tarantino movies. One was mentioned two weeks ago. One was mentioned last week. I think three were all mentioned this episode, or at least alluded to. Mm. I don't think I can get these. Okay, one of them. One of them stars the lead of last week's film. Uh, that's not a phone call in Die Hard. Not in Walkie Talkie stuff. No, you're thinking you're, you're in the wrong. You're in the wrong film, dude. Oh, I'm in the wrong film, Tom. Yeah. 
Oh, Jerry Maguire, of course. Of yes. course. I'm Jeez getting my God. weeks off. I'm getting my weeks off. God. I love black people. That's that is a great phone call. That is a great phone call. <laughs> All right. Um uh you were you were I, I cut you off, but you were getting there. Quentin Tarantino. The, no, 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 no. You, James you, Bond. You said something very recently and you were getting there. But you Die Hard. Die Hard with a Vengeance. That yes. has phone calls in it. Yes. Oh shit. There's a lot of phone calls in yes. it. Yes. <laughs> Okay. Um, again, the easiest one, man. The easiest one. Uh, scream. Is it, the stars, one. it stars Kiefer Sutherland and Colin Farrell. Oh, this one. <laughs> yeah. <The> fucking <laughs> um, One of them I mentioned as an example when directors use two cameras. Scorchese. No. Well, yes, 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 but not the. I I actually mentioned the Scorsese film for a different point that I was making. You mentioned the Scorsese film that wasn't the two. Cameras. Michael Mann. I meant. Ah, uh, okay. You're Jake has the two cameras one. Michael Mann. Yeah. Is it the scene in Heat where Neil McCauley tells him that there's a dead man on the other line? Yes. Yeah. That's hell so yeah. yeah. Hell yeah. That's so good. Oh. And then the Scorsese one, uh, we were talking about the sound movie? mixing. He is a fucking amazing <laughs> movie. <laughs> Just move on. <laughs> um, like a seven out of ten, right? Um, the <laughs> the Scorsese one is a movie that was brought up when we were talking about the sound mixing. I, th- I know what it is. Yeah. Same. What is it? Hold it. Is it a taxi driver where he's nope, talking nope. to Sybil Shepard? Oh, that's so fucking good. Fuck. Bro. That's, oh. That is a good one. Pauline Kale famously hated that scene. Pauline Kale hated that movie. Sure. I just know she hated that scene. Um, before we go on, Jake, gun to your head. What's a better movie, Heat or Black Hat? Gun to my head. I mean, it's Heat, man. I'm not Fuck off. I'm not on that wavelength yet. I need to see Black it's Hat. Black probably. Hat. But what's better, Heat or The Insider? Oh, Heat. Ooh. Heat, heat. What about. the fuck are you talking about? I'm joking. None um, of them. None of them. It's it's Miami Vice. <sighs> Nothing holds talk. a candle. We wait. About. You guys haven't. You guys haven't gotten the Scorsese one. <laughs> what? And we literally mentioned it in this episode, or at least I mentioned it. What? What did you say? No one talks on the phone unless the patient cries. The departed. The departed. Yes. Yes. The yes, fucking yes. departed. Yeah. Shit. When it's the silent call, and he's like, "You're calling That's me with a, a dead guy." Who phone. are you? Yeah. Sure, yeah. that's a good. That's a who good are you? This is a very Watch Mojo list where, yeah, like, even the ones that are good picks, I'm like, yeah, you're Watch Mojo. <laughs> All right, what haven't we gotten yet? Um, one of them is from 2008. Stars another Irish actor. Oh, Tim Bruges. Yeah, Tim Bruges. Very, very iconic. I have a very special set of skills. Yeah. That, you know. I will find you. Yeah. I will hunt you down, and I will kill you. Um, God, Watch Mojo. I love when the guy's just like, good luck at the end. And then yeah, that's the best part. It's like, but bro, you're going to die. Very fast. <laughs> uh, uh. Then we have another one where the movie doesn't star the lead of last week's film, but the lead of last week's film is the one who's on the phone. Tom Cruise. It's another 2008 film. Is in Tropic Thunder. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's kind of I will cute. massacre you. That's I will fuck, fuck you, you up. up. That's kind of cute. Uh, I think we only have one left. I don't think you guys are gonna get. This. Just can you just run down the full top ten then? Uh, 
Well, let me give you the year just see if you yeah. get it. It's from 1996. It stars somebody who wanted, who was interested in being in this film. Will Smith? No. And it's Wahlberg. MG. Gibson. Uh, oh, Ransom, probably. Yeah. yeah. I've never seen it. He says, Give me back my son. Can you oh, just run fuck. down the, yeah. yeah. Can you run down the top? All 10? right. Here's the list. Number yeah. 10 is The Departed. Number yep. nine is The Ring. Number eight is Tropic Thunder. <laughs> watch mojo number seven is ransom number six is die hard with a vengeance number five is phone booth number four is heat number three is jerry Maguire. number two is taken and then you know they do their cute honorable mentions dr strange love the born ultimatum the born ultimatum was the one born where... ultimatum the born even... supremacy the phone call is even better in the born supremacy yeah than it is in the, born Supre- the, the phone call and supremacy is so good even if ultimatum does the like cute twist yeah of like restaging it with additional context the one Nothing... to joe nallen is that the one yeah no, that's the one in the born ultimatum that they're talking about but the one in the born supremacy that i like is when he has the sniper rifle and he's on top of the building oh and yeah he yeah. sees he like drops the sniper rifle yeah. for a brief second because he's having a flashback yeah. and then he sees um julia styles and he's like there's a girl who's in paris send her to the- no but the one at the end of supremacy where he's like get some rest you look tired you look tired yes. and then the fucking moby kicks in sorry yeah. that's not the one that gets recontextualized but that's no that so is fun. that that's is the, the way that supremacy ends yeah and then and they then recontextualize it plays, in yeah, ultimatum yeah, yeah. which it is weird because he's wearing time. different yeah. clothes it's so much cooler oh another fucking one that should be this is the sounds of the lambs a reference i made in it this should episode. be that's an incredible <sighs> phone call having an old friend for dinner oh. Then we have Ocean's Eleven. I don't remember a phone call. There's no phone call in Ocean's yeah. Eleven. Right, so I don't know. <laughs> I what think he gets to. on the phone with Terry Benedict and taunts him at some point. I also don't know what's the one in Doctor Strangelove that they're talking the about. The fucking Dimitri the, the, bullshit. Dimitri, that's the most famous scene. In Dr. Oh Strangelove, yeah, okay, buddy. okay, yeah. Never mind. No, sorry. No, the <laughs> most famous thing scene is him riding the bomb sure. Okay, the cowboy hat. A yeah. movie that Cole famously loves, Doctor Strangelove. <laughs> I've already uh, said my Kubrick piece on this podcast. Anchorman and the Legend of Ron Burgundy. Another I am fo- in a glass cage. <laughs> no, another. <laughs> I'm in a glass yeah. cage of emotion. Sure. Uh, <laughs> another in the line of fire. I haven't seen in the line. <sighs> of fire. That has a bunch of phone calls in it. Connor, so referring to Connor. You would fucking love in the line of fire, buddy. Yeah, is he oh a secret service agent in that one? He's. He's not just a secret service agent. He's the head of the secret service. No, he's not the head of the secret service because he's kind of on the outs with the secret service. Oh. Jake, have you seen in the line of fire? No, but my dad he's, has been recommending it to me for 20 years now. He's the secret <laughs> service who jumps on the back of the car and grabs Jackie's hand in mm, the Kennedy assassin. Oh, assassin. what? That's, <laughs> that's why who he plays in the movie. That I, I mean, it might not literally be that guy, but he's one of the Secret Service guys in the <laughs> oh Kennedy assassination. <laughs> that's why he's getting targeted by this crazy killer who wants to kill the president. <laughs> I didn't know that. I gotta watch <laughs> this movie tonight. I have to watch it tonight. Malkovich, supporting actor nominee for that movie at the Oscars, oh, a really man. cool nomination. Oh no way! That movie you remember when uh, whips, guys. Do you remember at the RNC like years ago when Clint Eastwood came out and just spoke to an of empty course. chair? Yes, <laughs> yes, I watched it live. <laughs> All right, Jake. Listen, I can't remember what the top five was, but on the Minority Report one, we did the top five IndieWire uh, sci-fi. IndieWire's top five science no, that fiction films so of the 21st right, century, right. and they are like nowhere near where you would think they would be. Um, okay, cool. Okay, so. I'm going to hit you with the same game I always hit you with. And Jake, you are, you are welcome to play along here. Sure. Sure. 
What I do is I go to the box office website, the numbers, and I look up the movie we're covering and I pull up a keyword associated with that movie. And, so, and I would like Connor and you to guess the top five highest grossing movies unadjusted U.S. box office in this category. And this week's category for Bone Booth is movies. That I are guess set. is it hookers? Is it no. hookers? No, <laughs> that would it's be movies. Great. It's movies set in one location. Mm. Phone Booth is the oldest movie on this list and is number three. Oh, you, it's box office numbers or is By it? By US, US box unadjusted. Office. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Highest okay. gross. One location. One location. One location movies. Is it, uh, man, I don't know what's gross. It's a really fun list, I think. Yeah. This sounds crazy because it's like, it's not lock. It's not nope. One Night in Miami because. Nope. Um, not those movies like direct to streaming money. yeah uh lock is it's it's got to be down there right? locks lock 16 yeah. sorry these aren't these these aren't numbered they're just in an order so i had to yeah. count that locks number 16 one spot below ben wheatley's free fire okay what are what are movies that are based on plays because I feel like none most of these, of these movies, none of these movies are based on plays. Oh damn! Okay, because I these feel like all, most most films that take place in one location are an adaptation of a stage play. Is yeah. that would you disagree yeah. with me on that? Yes, but yeah. none of these are. William Freakin's Bug is not on the list. Okay, so I'm going to start giving you guys hints. Yeah, William Freakin's Bug is not on the list. Think trashier across the board. Trashier. Number one, this was a surprise box office hit, and this was a big hit. Made $72 million domestically. 72. Which is big for its scale. Mm. This movie was... It's not that Richard Linklater tape. No. I was going to say that too. This movie was a great movie. Um, Kind of like a critical passion project to get one of the actors in this movie Best Supporting Actor nomination. But this movie was probably just a little too junky for that to hit. Hmm. This movie was a huge surprise when it came out. It was shot in secret. It has a big, juicy supporting role from one of the most beloved character actors. It is technically a sequel. Technically a sequel. That's part it's, of the surprise of it all. It's not. It's a sequel in name only. Can I? Can I say? Yeah, go. Yeah. Throw one out. Yeah. Wait, a sequel in name only. Sequel in name only. I was gonna throw split out there. It's not split. Okay. Uh, there was a third movie in this series. That well, one was not a sequel in name only. No. Wait, there's wait. Okay, the name. film you're talking about is a sequel in name only. Yes. So there's a third one, Cloverfield. Uh, yes. Nineteen Cloverfield Lane. This is ten Cloverfield, yeah, 10 Cloverfield Lane. Lane. Ten Cloverfield Lane. Yeah. There was a lot of Goodman Oscar chatter that year. That feels in my head. The, the third one is a Netflix straight release, right? That movie is dog shit. Netflix. Yeah. Paradox but, is... But, so yeah, in my yeah. head, that one is also like straight to Netflix. Like I didn't encourage there's also, that it came out in a theater. There's also kind of a fourth Cloverfield movie. Who's um, the awards play for that? John Goodman? Goodman. John Goodman. Goodman. Yeah. He got a lot of critics love. Critics prize love. Yeah. For that performance. Is, who's He's the great. lead of that one? Mary Evan Winstead. Rachel Wood? Mary no. Elizabeth Winstead. Mary who's, Elizabeth the, Winstead. who's the supporting yeah. actor of that dude? John, Johnny Gallagher. Yeah. I like he him. works he still works yeah he's in stuff all the time is he that a good in... movie i haven't seen that in a long it's okay time. It's, it's i haven't it's seen it fine. since it came out that yeah. guy's not a very interesting director but he's like competent um who directed uh 10 cloverfield uh dan trachtenberg 
who did okay. the the most recent Predator movie. And yeah. Chazelle, Again, Chazelle wrote the script, but he's he done a wrote... Chazelle. Chazelle does write that movie. I forgot that. Yeah. All right. Number two. This is probably the least liked and biggest flop movie from one of like the most beloved and iconic American directors. He's beloved and iconic enough that even his flops can still make $54 million domestically. Alien Uh, 3. No. More recent. More recent. All these movies are in the 2010s, except for Foot. Oh, okay. okay. They're all 2010s. What this generation is the director? The, the Gen X director. The Gen X director. The Gen X director. Oh, is it fucking? This was a is huge it fucking flop. midsummer. No. no, and people people did not like this movie at all. God it still it. got a couple Oscar nominations because he like can't miss, including a big Best Supporting Actress nomination. It's a very unpleasant and nihilistic movie. I famously love it. I think it's his best movie. It was a big Christmas release, which is insane because of how unpleasant this movie is, though it is very snowy. And very again, it snowy. takes place in one location. It takes place in one location. Outside of like a prologue, which is major Gen X location. director. The, God, damn it. It's the, not the, mother. It's not mother. Huge cast. It's not mother. Huge cast. Yeah, yeah. Mother came out in the in the early fall. Uh incorrectly titled. Incorrectly I will say. Titled. God incorrectly titled. Uh what year? 2015. Big Christmas release, huge cast, deeply unpleasant. The like stock answer for this director's worst movie. The Hateful Eight. The Hateful Eight. Oh. A movie that is incorrectly titled because there is no count you can get to that there are eight hateful people in that. I'm with you, Cole. I like the Hateful Eight. Even if you want to say everyone in that movie is hateful, there are nine people in that cat. Just putting that out there. Yeah, because Channing Tatum's in the basement, right? Channing Tatum's in the basement. Mm. Can't be mad. I spoiled that. Uh, Number three is Phone Booth. Number four is a movie that straight up does not exist. Number three was Phone Booth? Number three is Phone Booth. So it made less. Straight up does not exist. Has a bunch of big stars that probably carried it to $30 million the domestic box office, uh, even though nobody liked it. Um, Nobody liked it. The famous thing about this movie is that in the weeks leading up to this movie, everyone thought this was going to turn out to be a Marvel movie. It's not a Marvel movie, but there oh, was it's a, life. It's life. It's life. Yeah. Yeah. It's life. This is my everybody favorite. thought it was a Venom movie. Uh, yeah, everyone it was a Venom thought prequel. this anonymous sci-fi movie. Which that being how people received that movie is probably what killed Hollywood, right? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That people were just like got just like a fucking. Well, it's partially march. their fault. They're stealing the iconography, yeah. but the but people just popular. got yeah, a fucking yeah, yeah. March sci-fi movie with Jake Gyllenhaal and Ryan Reynolds, and they were like a mystery box. I kind of get it's it a though, man. Secret Venom movie. They didn't do any. No, um, I know, I know, I know. It's 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 uh, it's a fool's errand to go into movies with that kind of mindset. Because yeah. let's be real, if they're gonna make a movie with that kind of IP around it, the entire marketing campaign is going to be geared yeah. towards the movie being tied with that. And, and the fact that people haven't figured that out by now is a little frustrating, but like, I can understand why at the time people were like, is this a Venom movie? Because it was produced by Sony and the, the, there are like two things, you know, from Venom about Venom. He's black goo. He comes from space and it's like a space movie about black goo. That's yeah. A, a, thing, a thing that predates Venom, by the way, a thing that predates Venom. Black sure, oil. but, it's the most 
Yeah. Venom now is what's tied to that iconography. Yeah. You know what I mean? Number five. We Does have it mentioned... also take place in space? No. This is the old... Well, depending on how you feel about phone booth, this is the only movie that is a single location movie on this list that takes place outdoors. Outdoors. It is a single location. One might but this say one's that, inarguable. Like phone booth is arguable, but this one's well. Phone booth is like is the phone booth an outdoor yeah. space or an indoor space? This guy's outside. Uh, one hundred twenty-seven hours. One hundred and twenty-seven hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's a fun list. Like, are any of those movies really huge hits? No, but I think that's a fun list. One hundred twenty-seven hours, is. Danny Boyle movie. I actually really like that movie. It's quite good. It's so unpleasant. I like the sound design in that movie a lot. Sound design's incredible. It's so effective, yeah. Uh, Other movies just ringing out this list just because none of these movies are big hits. Where's a rope? How far down the ladder are we? It's it's actually not on the list. (laughs) Remember, someone has to have chosen to tag this as a single location movie. (laughs) So it's going to skew a little bit. Other movies on this list, uh, Bad Times at the El Royale, more like Bad Movie at the El Royale. Uh, The prequel to the thing uh, oh, the American yeah. remake of silent house with elizabeth olsen one of the few f cinema score movies uh bodies 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 good movie good movie and uh the belko experiment a forgotten movie that kind of yeah. kicks yeah right that movie's so fucking good have you seen the belko experiment connor belko experiment is i gotta look up who directed this um, James Gunn, I Gunn think, wrote, wrote it, it yeah. and produced it. And it's got a lot of James Gunn like players in it. It's Greg McLean, the Australian torture porn director. Uh, okay. the, the Wolf Creek guy directed this movie. But it's basically like <laughs> a bunch of office employees find out that they've been injected with like explosive tracking devices and they all have to kill each other oh, in an office oh, building. I know it. It's I know not what you're talking about. mayhem. The Joe Lynch movie that is very similar that came out around the same time. It's Isn't better there, than Mayhem. It's better. I, I like Mayhem a lot. Mayhem's fun. Yeah. I, we had Cole, to have had you, this conversation Cole, look, when this came out, Jake. Cole, can I'm you sure look one did. up for me and yeah. let me know if it would be on the list? Can you yeah. look up um, Snowpiercer, how much it made? Yeah, well, I'll see if it's on the list in the first place. Um, hold on. It is not on the list. But Do the moving still. vehicle movies count? Like, yeah, I, was I would say think speed. that's a single location. Speed is like a whole yeah. prologue and everything. So, Dude, how does Die speed. Hard not count? Because he's on the airplane? Because yeah. he's on the plane at the way? very Maybe beginning. because it's not, quote unquote, a single floor or a single room that he's moving throughout the building. That's crazy. All these other ones that are in like confined spaces. Right. Yeah, that. Um, it's and more maybe defined. that's why Snowpiercer wouldn't count. If we wanted Have to you seen count, a Buried starring Ryan? Buried Ryan. is actually is on this list. It's just very low. It actually made way less money than I thought it did. Yeah. Snowpiercer, if Snowpiercer were on this list, Snowpiercer would be at number uh 12 in between fall. The uh, AI advertisement that was released oh, to theaters the tower last movie, year, yeah. the tower movie. I don't know if you guys know about that being an AI advertisement. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Carnage, the Roman Polanski movie, which is <laughs> Carnage. And then one spot down there is Skinnamarink. Uh, I still haven't seen Skinnamarink because I'm a coward. Same. Uh, it's just scared. fucking cool that that movie made $2 million at the US box office. Yeah. Skinnamarink and Terrifier 2, like becoming like word of mouth hits is just fucking cool as hell Delightful. And i don't even care like, i haven't seen skin break i don't care what you think about those movies it's cool that 
they're they're like breaking out of these like straight to streaming bubbles that they were planned for. It is. Yeah. That they they've they've uh transcended just like the shutter crowd. Yeah. Also know? Terrifier 2 kicks ass, man. Terrifier know, I'm so 2. Upset. Did you I ever did you it. ever see it? No, I yeah, missed the theatrical distribution. Yeah. I felt it was pointless to rent, but now I'm it's, like I should have rode the wave. I, I am I am not going to say that it is some feminist like manifesto, but we were talking back when it came out, Jake, about mm-hmm. our concerns about that movie because have you seen his other movies? The first one? Uh, the first one, yeah. We were talking about... I, I think Terrifier yeah. and All Hallows Eve are like deeply misogynistic deeply movies. Misogyny, like yeah. grotesquely misogynistic movies. I am not saying Terrifier 2 is like the fucking scum manifesto mm-hmm. or anything, but it is not like as hateful and mm-hmm. pornographic as his other movies. It are. doesn't rectify. It is, it is truly right? a yeah. fun time in the way mm-hmm. that his first movies are grotesque and seeing that movie in a theater with a bunch of teenagers who had snuck in and had never seen anything <laughs> that violent before. Oh, one of the best theatrical experiences of 2022 for me. That's our episode. Unless we got anything else we want to say. Do you guys like 24? <gasps> we didn't even fucking talk about 24. <laughs> I watched season one of 24 a few years after it came out. And I really like season one of 24. And when I tried to watch season two of 24, I was like, I'm so not into this anymore. There's like I remember seasons, season three right? being my it's favorite. A, there is like that the was chemical like, warfare stuff. Yeah, that was like, like the, the first show that like yeah. was fully James Badgedale's season came back. three, I think. Yeah. Well, now I want to watch twenty four season three. I think James Badgedale is in <laughs> season Dale? three, and he is dating Alicia Cuthbert, Cuthbert, whatever her name is. Great, Jack Bauer's daughter. I love Alicia Cuthbert. Jack Bauer. General. God damn it! James Badgedale. <laughs> he just yells that over and over. <laughs> now there is an actor, guys. Just one of our best, truly. Girl Next Door. Oh, I was talking Jimmy Dale, but Alicia <laughs> Cuthbert also rules. Girl Next Door, not the best movie ever made, but a lot of fun. I do believe I have the highest rated review for that on Letterboxd. Really? Um, yeah, I think so. I'd have to double check. <laughs> uh, she's also, did you guys ever watch the show Happy Endings? The sitcom? No. no, uh, she that show fucking fucking whips, and she is like transcendently funny on it. Season two of Above the Title, Emil Hirsch, the state nope. of the 21st nope. century. No, nope. oh, I don't have it. I have, I have, I have. Oh, it's dropped. It used to be much higher. My girl next door review, anyway. Um, you guys could do Josh Hartnett because he has two movies. There's already been a podcast box. about Josh Hartnett. Let me. Everyone forgets this. Let me sign us off with one question because we brought it up. This thing I'm obsessed with is like the public knowledge of the narrative of Colin Farrell's career. And talking about Buried is, again, a movie I don't think anybody has seen yet. Everybody knows it's like the one where Ryan Reynolds was (laughs) taken seriously for a brief (laughs) amount of time as an actor. And it's just these like public narratives that somehow form that everybody just accepts to be the way that an actor's career has maneuvered over the years is something that i find interesting because who is setting who is canonizing these these stories that we tell about someone's career and i i think it's kind of ineffable yeah you know that's what i gotta say i know it's a shitty answer um but i think it's just collective things that stick or don't stick and i don't know that we can necessarily answer these questions i mean with buried i think it's just a good marketing campaign 
My last question is, do I have a limit on Pacino quotes from next week? Zero. Okay. You get none. I get none. You get none. I will <laughs> cut them all out. I Man, I'm struggling uh, not to do the heat one right now. Don't do it. Anyway, that's the show for this week. Uh, Jake, uh, thank you so much for joining. This was a lot of fun. You got anything was, you want to plug? It was a pleasure. Um, yeah, I, I produce a podcast called The Cinnabums. Uh, and Cole was actually a guest back in October. And yes, um, yeah, it's just Cinna Bums. Like it's the first syllable of Cinna, Cinema, and then Bums. Um, you can find us on wherever you get your podcasts. And it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you guys for having me. And I cannot wait for the Miami Vice episode, although it's very it's very selfish that you guys refuse any guests on that, but I also get it at the same time. Dude, we went three hours on phone booth. I want a first. (laughs) There's no way. I I get it. Trust me. I want want to put this on the record for anyone listening about the Miami Vice thing. It's only fair if nobody gets to be a guest on Miami Vice. Yeah. Because here's the thing. The very first person I asked to guest on this show, who will be on in a few weeks, asked for Miami Vice. And I said no. But if I had said yes to him, then the at least off the top of my head, five people who have also asked for Miami Vice, I would have had to say, no, you weren't the first person I asked to be on the show. And that's just not fair. I knew everyone was going to want Miami Vice. So I just said nobody gets Miami Vice and no one has their feelings hurt by no, not I getting get to do it. That's my it. take. It if just had mad, to be said. If you're Cole, mad, and I, Cole and I will talk about this more. Also, maybe very like possibly. It. No, I like, I think he is a better movie. Stop saying I don't like things that I clearly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. What were you saying before I? I said maybe Cole you. and I will will flirt with doing like a mini bonus where we get like five minute call ins from people. If they uh, could yeah, make their we could maybe. Oh, that'd be lovely. We could yeah, maybe yeah. do that. Yeah. I just. Look, anyone who's upset about not getting Miami Vice. You already weren't going to get Miami Vice because like I said, it was the very first request. Before I had asked a second person, I had a request for Miami Vice. So sucks to suck. Yeah. Also, Connor doesn't like it. So I already need to spend oh four God. hours yelling. I want to be clear too. I would have picked phone booth regardless. <laughs> oh, I know. I, I would have picked phone booth. Actually I, mad at me. I just wanted to drink no. mojitos maybe on, on mic, but that's okay. You guys will have a That's blast. That's going to be. I'm actually, I've said this before. I'm actually terrified of doing that episode. Um, just not, I, was, so I was a little bit terrified of doing this one heading in because I didn't feel like I had as much to say about like Minority Report. I was like, I could talk about Minority Report for eight hours. Just endless amounts of things to say about that one. This one is more like an enjoyable, messy B-movie. But yeah. those are fun. And Yeah. Yeah. Is this episode could be longer than Minority Report? Yeah, oh, yeah. Minority Report yeah. is like... That's hysterical even, to me. <laughs> not even the longest episode we had recorded coming into this. Hell yeah. That's, is um, Hardsport the longest? One? Well, this is going to be longer than Hardsport, unless I cut a bunch of it out, which I'm not going to. Maybe this little uh, West sure, Longest sure. episode tangent. I didn't um, mean to cause another t- tangent, my best. She's got Oh, God. Great ass! <laughs> and you got <laughs> your head! I'm calling it! Wait, I'm calling it! That's the show. Next week, it's Pacino. Connor's getting fed with a dog collar, so he doesn't do this shit. It's Pacino. It's the recruit. It's Roger Donaldson. Wait, I'll do Doug I'll do Doug out. <laughs> Until then. I got I'm ideas. Just, can I mute I'm you? Smart. I'm gonna, okay, Connor's muted. <laughs> <laughs>
um, until then, I'm probably supposed to tell you. Connor is taking his shirt off. He's fully shirtless, um, doing a John Cazell impression. Connor, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, you can unmute yourself. Um, <laughs> until then. I'm pretty sure I'm supposed to ask you to rate, review, subscribe. I truly don't give a shit if you do that. Uh, you don't want to find this podcast because you're already listening to it. We'll be back with the recruit next week. Jake, thank you for so much for joining us. Thank Until you. then, fuck specifically the weird Eminem parody that Ben Foster plays in this movie. It's all been all back to lies. <laughs>